0: Something we've been curious about this
1: broadcast. This is Moscow.
0: This is Moscow Gordon. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alekseyevich. Ladies and gentlemen,
2: you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal.
0: No, no, Damn. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. All Moscow is waiting to give a hero's welcome to the world's first spaceman, Major Gagarin of the Soviet Air Force. And to begin the bulletin, here's a Moscow recording of his voice speaking to Russian scientists as he went through space. Major Gagarin was sent up in his four-and-a-half-ton spaceship from somewhere in the Soviet Union soon after 7 o'clock this morning our time. And about 148 minutes later, he was brought down again after his 25,000-mile-an-hour flight around the Earth at heights ranging between 105 and 181 miles. As he looked down on the earth from the loneliness of space, he streaked across Asia, Africa and South America, constantly checking his instruments and controlling the pitch and roll of the ship by firing small correcting rockets. During his flight, his reactions were checked by radio and television devices. When he got down, Major Gagarin said in a message to Mr. Khrushchev, the landing was normal. I feel well. I have no injuries or bruises. When he was told the momentous news in Ottawa, Mr. Macmillan said, It's a very notable achievement. I'm sending a message of congratulation to Mr. Khrushchev. The Prime Minister is now flying home after his three-week tour of the West Indies, the United States and Canada. President Kennedy, too, has sent congratulations to the Soviet Union. In New York, all-night radios broadcast the news in special news flashes, and the New York Times carried in its last editions a treble headline. Soviet launches a man into orbit, maintains radio contact with him, first human in space feels well. The director of the National Space Agency, Mr. James Webb, called the flight a splendid achievement, adding that he hoped the Russians would make available to scientists the information they gained from the experiment.
3: Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction special because we're joining with others all over the world to take part in a global space party called Yuri's Night. At the beginning of the show, you heard an extract from a BBC Home Service news bulletin from April the 12th, 1961, the historic moment when Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. Since 2001, the space community have got together on or around April 12th to raise a glass to Yuri Gagarin in events that span across all seven continents and even on the International Space Station. Not only is it Yuri's flight that we are celebrating, but human achievements in space. As we record this episode, there are over 147 events in 43 countries taking part, and as always, the TGP Nominal Yuri's Night podcast is registered as an official virtual event. So if you're joining us from the Yuri's Night website, a very warm welcome to you all, and I hope you'll come back in the future. Normally at this point, I turn up the fader and introduce my regular co-host, John Berger. Happy Yuri's Night, John.
2: Hello, mate. How you doing? Recovering.
3: I'm doing all right. Yeah, it's
2: that time of year again, isn't it? Dude, PAX. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, PAX East time of year. That's, uh... Whoa. Four days, gaming convention, massive, massive building, seventy-five thousand people. Oh yeah! But boy, was it awesome. Although we'll you know, we'll we'll talk about that in more detail in the next episode. But uh, you asked how I'm doing, so that's that's how I'm doing. <laughs>
3: So, I don't know if you heard the last TGP Nominal Extra, John. No. (laughs) Well, it was a combination. It was the second part of the interview that uh, I did with Julie Fernandez, who we did a great interview with for the Field of Force Day episode. Right. Uh, And the second part of it was my trip to Corby for the WCMX Jam, the wheelchair motocross event that took place at Adrenaline Alley. And uh, we've been putting some posts up about it on the Facebook page and those posts have had over 4,500 views. Nice. So um, that's the, the, the largest amount of views for any post that we've had in the past and we've had so much positive reactions from people as well and it was such a great event and if the guys involved with WCMX want me to promote anything else just let me know because I just had a blast. So, yeah, I think we should get on with the main part of the show. We're going to have a a short break and when we come back we're going to talk a little bit about space news and what's going on out there in the space community. So, uh, We'll be right back after this message.
4: Hi everybody, this is Diane Weiner from Syracuse University. Thanks very much to our friends at TGP Nominal for inviting me to have the opportunity to tell you a little bit about a wonderful event that's happening April 13, 2019 on our campus. You're also welcome to join us via live stream and we'll share more details soon. On Saturday, April 13, 2019, the 6th Cripping the Comic-Con will be happening on our campus. It's the only completely disability-themed Comic-Con that exists, as far as we know, and we call it the CripCon for short. We'll be sharing details regarding our live stream plenary panel soon. Check our website, crippingthecon.com, ncom CrippingTheCon.com, for updates and other information. You can also find on our website stuff that has to do with why we call it the KripCon and also what we're up to in terms of making sure the event is as inclusive and accessible as possible. The live streaming will provide the opportunity for folks around the corner and around the globe to share comments and questions through a chat interface with Nancy Silberkleit, co-CEO of Archie Comics, author, scholar, activist, and artistic consultant Jason Harris, Leroy Moore and Keith Jones, founders of the Crip hop Nation, author-illustrator of the book Dumb, Georgia Weber, author-illustrator of the book The War for Caleb, Jason Pittman, and author-illustrator of the webcomic The Cult of Bones, Lucy Wales. For those visiting us in person, the symposium is free and open to anyone and everyone in the public except that final hour, which is designated as a caucusing space and time for folks who identify as disabled, including folks who identify in lots of other ways and maybe not identify as disabled, but perhaps identify as deaf, autistic, neurodivergent, and mad, including people from the public. There are free breakfast and dinner receptions provided and free parking. If you want to learn more about what Cripping means, as I said, you can visit our website and also, again, information there about our commitment to accessibility. In addition to the workshops by and with Nancy Silber-Kleit, uh Leroy Moore, and Keith Jones and George Weber, we'll have workshops with illustrator and co-creator of our team of disabled superheroes, the Axis Avengers, Jill Stromberg. Cosplayers and artists and writers Nancy Amaro and Joe Ministeri will be doing a workshop. As will light painter and photographer David Schleish, whose image is accompanying um, my opportunity to share this news with you. Gaming and music aficionados Ben. John and Timmy Champa will also be offering a workshop. Our featured artists this year are Mike Mort, Katie Tastrum, and Kate Pollock. We'll have an accessible photo booth, the gaming room, low-stim and quiet area, vendors and info tablers, and much more. Doctor Who fans won't want to miss the wibbly wobbly timey wimey booth with Heather Seaman Daly. Jason Randall and his friends and our friends will be joining us from Syracuse Nerd. Live On from the Center on Disability Rights will be there too as will our companions and comrades from the Syracuse University Bookstore, with special thanks to Karen Kelly Spencer. And they'll have featured books connected with our guests, of course, and lots of other nerd, geek, and comics things, unsurprisingly. Learn about a new online game, Snail Runner, by brothers Omar and Sultan Al-Safadi, and meet this dynamic duo. Omar graduated from Syracuse University. Joe Munasteri will also share his art and writing from unlocking creativity, and we're thrilled to once again be joined by Youth Power. The image shared on the website is of a light painting from 2017 by Dave Schleich, as noted. David depicts here prescription medication bottles forming letters to spell, quipping the con, illuminated in yellows and oranges as if ablaze. The numbers and codes associated with the photograph are depicted in white at the top of the image, which has a darkened background. These numbers and codes are 185, 9.0, 101-8775, And CF appears in a square. So thanks again from the bottom of our nerd hearts to Mark Taylor and John Berger and everyone else at TGP Nominal. We appreciate so much your unwavering support, and we hope to see you in person or virtually at Cripping the Comic-Con 2019.
2: This is TGP Nominal.
3: So, welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, as I said before the break, we were going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in the space community, and uh, one thing I wanted to speak about quickly, John, did you see the the launch of the the Progress MS-11?
2: No, I didn't. Which one was this? The the, the
3: Progress, which is a uh, cargo vessel from Russia. The fact that it took three and a half hours to get to the space station. Oh, okay, I missed that one. (laughs) Wow! No, it launched from Baikonur, obviously at Mm -hmm. 11:01 Greenwich Mean Time on April the fourth, setting the stage for the spacecraft to rendezvous with the outpost just after three hours later. Mm -hmm. It was a two-orbit rendezvous profile, and it's only the second time this had been performed successfully. Um, And the first time was during the MS9 in July last year, uh, and it's possible that this trajectory could be used during future crewed Soyuz flights to get astronauts and cosmonauts to the station faster than ever. Nice. And if it can be done with Soyuz, then it can be done with any of the other vehicles that are pretty
2: much up and coming. Sure, sure. So now I'm curious, was it just a matter they got the right trajectory, or...? Yeah, pretty much. As I say, it was a two-orbit maneuver. Mm-hmm.
3: But yeah, three and a half hours. Wow,
2: that's nuts. That's awesome, just,
3: but nuts. If you can do that kind of thing in three and a half hours, then you could get flights to and from the ISS in like two or three a day. You know, it's it
2: could be that kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> Previous uh, capsules followed six hour or two-day rendezvous profiles. Mm-hmm. As, there's no in-between. It's either six hours or two days. So, yeah, I, I was watching it. Thought, oh, yeah, yeah,
3: it's just another uh, cargo mission. And it said, oh, uh, we'll be continuing our coverage of this. I thought, Well, for six hours? It went three and a half hours. Huh. Really? Really? So they were just showing videos of what the things could do, and this, that, and the other, and how this was different than the other methods of getting there. I thought, no, this can't be possible. Sure enough, just over three hours, I get a notification on my phone, ready to dock.
2: Wow. Okay, then. Part of me should feel bad that I missed this article. The other part of me is like, you know what, we've gotten to a point of complacency. We've had so many successful launches lately. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's ah, another launch going up. As we speak, there's possibly going to be a big one tomorrow. Oh, I know. It would have been nice if we were able to actually talk about that one today, but it's been delayed again. Yeah. And, Which and is our, fine.
3: It's fine. Our, our, you know. our history of doing the live launches where the YouTube channel doesn't update itself quick enough, and we just about missed it.
2: Have we been <laughs> able to do a live? Yeah, we've done one. Yeah, we've, we? we've done yeah.
3: one. Yeah, that was one of the first first stage landings yeah okay that's right that would have been cool if we could have done it on the first um, falcon heavy launch that would have been
2: well i was at work <laughs> I, I was at work at the time although i've got a google hangouts chat with uh, several friends of mine and we were all following that and you could tell when there was a little bit of a delay between us because all of a sudden my one friend you know typed in there are you <clears throat> effing kidding me and then, like, five seconds later, they both touch down. <laughs> it's like, okay, he's got a little bit ahead than me. I sometimes get that. If, if you leave the chat
3: thing going and somebody's saying something about something I haven't seen yet, and then, well, hang on a minute, is their feed a little bit quicker than mine? Or yeah.
2: I've had weird times where I'll be watching a launch and something happens and I restart it, and I end up being, like, 20 seconds ahead of where I was before. Okay. You know, not behind, but ahead. I'm like, how does this happen? I know how it happens. I'm familiar with how streaming technology works. Mm -hmm. But still, it's just like, really? In this day and age, we still have that kind of latency going on? But uh, what can you do? Yeah. I love the old days, the old satellite uh, links between
3: newsrooms and people out in the field. and <laughs> the, the person with their finger in their ear going, you know, they're nodding at the guy and they're knowing that they haven't actually
2: heard what he's actually said yet. Yeah. And <laughs> then a four-second delay and his response comes. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great if they could land all three this time? Well, well, is tomorrow's launch going to be one where they can return the third, I, the main stage? I haven't really looked into it. Tomorrow there's an 80% chance of favorable conditions so it's going to go- going to deliver the Arabsat 6A into orbit. According to this, they're going to try all three. Cool. It says in Falcon Heavy's first flight, both side boosters made successful landings, but the central core booster splashed down in the ocean instead of being caught by SpaceX's drone ship. We'll see if they have better luck this time around. So it looks like they are going to try to catch all three. Well, I think we're pretty sure that the two side rockets they're gonna be okay they've got a good track record on that so far generally they're pretty good on land oh though, yeah aren't they? well even even the one with the fin that got stuck it still kind of looked like oh, i'm just gonna land in the water here okay fine now i'll fall over
3: It <laughs> <laughs> still wasn't awful but the the, the one uh, for the falcon heavy
2: last time i mean how close that was, was amazing. that i still watch that I, I still watch that whole takeoff and landing because it's, it's amazing that, that central core was that close. It was, clo- Of course, it dropped in at, what, 300 miles an hour? Yeah. It, was- <laughs> it,
3: it caused a bit of a tidal wave, but yeah. yeah. It, it-
2: <laughs> as long as it was close and not on target, mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise you'd be having to buy a new drone ship.
3: Oh, yeah, there'd be but, a big uh, hole straight through the middle of it. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this one, they're, they're going to try it again, so knock on wood. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to make sure to watch that. It says 6.35 Eastern. Oh, you'll be home by then. I will be home by then. <laughs> no, 6.35 Eastern. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to make sure I get an alert on that. Uh, that'll be
3: cool. What's that? 11, 11 something p.m. here. 10.35 GMT. All oh, right. Okay. So 11. Yeah, that's all right. I can deal with that. <laughs> I could deal with that if it was 2 o'clock in the morning, to be honest. <laughs>
2: course then again by the time people hear this podcast it'll already have taken off well hopefully Hopefully. anyway (laughs) since our last show nasa has released kepler's final image uh so that is uh, obviously well kepler was the big planet hunter and it's discovered a whole bunch of exoplanets out there uh from a you know super earth to Saturn-sized gas giants, uh, to just what they call unusually sized planets that kind of straddle those different categories. It's found ridiculous amounts of planets out there, but it ran out of fuel. So its last photo was taken on September 15th of last year, but NASA just released it. You know, well, just released it relatively uh, since the last show. And it's kind of weird because it also shows how it was starting to degrade because it was it was having camera failures so when you look at the final image it actually looks like a bunch of boxes instead of one nice contiguous image so it doesn't look like the kind of things that we would expect from hubble or or things like that or or the spitzer space telescope but nonetheless they they have released The last image is part of its, what's called the K2 Second Light Mission Extension, because remember, it had its main mission, and it just kept going on as as much as they could do it. So this was part of the last one. And this mission has been going on since 2013, right until its fuel gave out. And at that point, it obviously couldn't align itself. It couldn't do anything. So it was probably actually still working for a while, but probably couldn't get the data back to us. Yeah. Because it couldn't align itself. So, for the final photo, it's actually pointing toward the direction of Aquarius, the constellation, obviously. And it has already seen some things there, but obviously it was just... They were looking to see what else they could find before it finally gave up the ghost. So, NASA has made that image available. What can you say about it? It's the last that we'll ever get of Kepler. Yeah. But just goes to show, I mean, the thing lasted for almost 10 years. And Hubble is still going on. Yeah. I mean, we have got things that are
3: going to be doing a similar thing to Kepler, so that's you know we have got something that can kind of replace it. But um, it's one of those things. I mean, and, and obviously the technology does degrade over time.
2: So yeah. Well, and when you're talking about actual fuel, liquid fuel, mm. that's gonna run out. Oh yeah. So there's there's nothing you can do on that one. I guess really... Well, uh, well, what's the next big one we're waiting for? The James Webb, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that there is another one as well, and I've forgotten which one it
3: is. Um, but yeah, there is another one queued up behind
2: James Webb. Yeah, and, I know uh, what you're talking about. I can't remember it either. And that's gone quiet again with James Webb. <sighs> Last I heard, it was scheduled to launch March of 2021. Uh, I know that Congress is not happy with... The amount of time it's taking, the amount of money it's taking. They've already put so much work into it. Just let them finish it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why. They're trying to keep low so that uh, Congress doesn't have such a watchful eye on them. Maybe. Speculation. I don't know.
3: Eh, Could be. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen recently the images that Curiosity have been sending back about the solar eclipses on Mars. Yeah, there was two solar eclipses caused by Mars's two moons, Phobos and and Deimos. Um, And the mast cam on Curiosity has got solar filters, which allows it to stare directly at the sun, which, by the way, I wouldn't suggest anybody does. No, Um, no. Yeah, so Curiosity imaged Phobos, the larger of the two moons, on March the 26th. And because Phobos, which is 16 miles or 26 kilometers at its widest point, doesn't completely cover the Sun, uh, this is considered by scientists to be an annual eclipse. Uh, The rover photographed Deimos, which is only about 10 miles across at its widest, on the 17th of March, and that is so small compared to the disk of the Sun, in the martian sky that it's passing in front of the sun is considered to be a transit
2: yeah i'm looking at the uh, (coughs) gifs right now
3: (laughs) the the first solar eclipse observation from the martian surface were by the twin mars exploration rovers spirit and opportunity in 2004 at that time there was so much higher degree of uncertainty about the orbit of each of the moons the first time one of the rovers attempted to capture uh, Demos transit in the sun the moon was 25 miles or 40 kilometers away from where it was expected to be. More observations over time help pin down the details of each orbit said Mark Lemon of Texas a and University College Station, a co-investigator with uh, Curiosity's mast cam. Those orbits change all the time in response to the gravitational pull of Mars, Jupiter or even each of the Martian moons pulling on each other. In addition to the eclipse images taken by the Mars cam, uh, one of Curiosity's two navigation cameras, or navcams, observed the shadow of Phobos uh, momentarily darkening the sky at sunset as the moon passed over the rover on March 25th. Eclipses, sunrises and sunsets, and weather phenomena all make Mars real to people as the world both like and unlike what they see outside, not just as a subject in a book, Lemon said. So yeah, they, they were quite remarkable images.
2: They are neat to look at. Uh, yeah. and, and it's neat that, that Curiosity was well in the right place to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is TGP Nominal. Well, unfortunately, one of the big things that I think a lot of us were looking forward to was the first all-female spacewalk that was to occur last month. And then it got scrubbed. Yeah. Well, I understand the initial reactions for people thinking, you know, oh, this is a sexist thing, which... Well, actually, no, I don't understand that. That's kind of preposterous. I don't know that NASA really would care about that, but what happened is they do have suits up there. They're not all ready for use. I'm sure you've seen the training videos in pools where they're in the suits and so forth. Those suits are basically really hard plastic and probably metal and the only parts that can move basically the arms and legs yeah if you don't fit that perfectly you're probably going to hurt you won't be able to see out of it properly you won't be able to manipulate the arms and legs properly this isn't something where they can just say oh well take the large and reduce it in size or you know whatever just just stand on your tippy toes and you'll be able to fit it doesn't work that way in a spacesuit. So what happened was they needed two medium suits for both women to go on the spacewalk. They have multiple medium spacesuits, but not all of them were ready to be used. I mean, I know they got something like 11 suits. I think I heard. Sure, but they, again, they're all of different sizes. Or sizes, yeah. And different states of operation and readiness.
3: Uh, and what you got to remember is these suits are not really kitted out for what they need to be
2: used for. I mean, right. these suits are... They're decades old! Nearly 40 years old in design. And quite frankly, it's kind of amazing that they still work. Mm-hmm. Really. They can't just... Go down to the local department store and buy a new spacesuit. No. It doesn't work that way.
3: We're still a little way off yet from um, any new development of suit. I mean,
2: I know they are developing them as we speak, but they're not ready yet. Exactly. And, and even Anne McLean said that the decision to cancel it was based on her recommendation. So, you know, if there's any chance of risk, which would happen if you don't have a suit that's completely ready or one that's ill-fitting, when you have that, you've got to make a decision to you know do what's right for the crew. So it doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. It's, it's not even as
3: though something was planned. It was something that just happened to be at the right time, you know, there was right three females involved uh, you know one at capcom and and two involved with it it was just in rotation that's who came up to be taking part in that eva um you've you got to be safe
2: you can't take risks i mean the way people are reacting to it they're, they're acting like it was some kind of super oh my god amazing thing that would have happened and it would have been on the surface but it's not like it can't happen in the future yeah And all that NASA cares about is getting the job done. Sure, Mm -hmm. publicity would have been nice. It would have been cool for NASA to be able to say, hey, we had our first all-female spacewalk. But the reality comes in, and it's like, oh, well, okay, not if it's going to risk the astronauts. We'll just hold back on that. So, everyone, calm down. (laughs) We are dealing with old technology here. And sometimes these things just don't work out. That's it. Well, there's a thread on Twitter from a woman named Mary Robinette Kowal. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And she's not an astronaut or anything, but she is a Hugo Award-winning science fiction author. And she went on this whole thing about it. She says that uh, the EMUs on the ISS were designed, designed more than 40 years ago with a 15-year shelf life. 11 of the original 18 are still in use, only four of them are on the ISS. So, supposedly each suit is supposed to be completely refurbished on the ground after six years, or 25 EVAs, whichever comes first. But, they're still 40-year-old suits, and they're not designed to be refurbished in space. So, they're supposed to end up going back to NASA. So, and NASA says that when there's not one readily available, it's sort of like... Yeah, we're, it's up there, but we still have to do tests on it. Apparently, there have been 27, quote-unquote, significant suit failures. None have been fatal. I know that there were some that definitely had the possibility of being fatal, uh, one of which was that um, condensation on the inside ended up actually com- you know coming into contact with the astronaut, and, well, you can't shake it off. That, you know, that kind of requires gravity to a, to an extent. So he ended up having to get back inside the ISS with his eyes closed. And there was another instance where one almost drowned because there was so much fluid. So, you know, there have been some potentially fatal failures on those EVAs that are up there. I think Tim Peake's
3: spacewalk got uh, cut off quicker than it should have done because Tim Copper's suit had a problem with... Some kind of water issue, I think. I think it may have been the same suit, actually.
2: It could have been. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're supposed to have some kind of pads in there that will absorb water because, you know, when you've got the warmth inside the suit and the extreme cold on the outside, you're going to get condensation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's supposed to have the equivalent of water collectors. Well, sometimes they don't work well or there's too much condensation for it to capture it all. Space is hard. Mm-hmm. We keep We've saying We've been this. saying that, yes. Space yeah. is hard. The upper torso, it's a fiberglass shell. You can't do anything with it. You have So you have to be sized for it. You have to be able to make sure it works. And, again, it's four of them up there of a 40-year-old design that are supposed to be refurbished every six years. Stuff like this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, folks. We will eventually get our all-female spacewalk, just not yet. Got to make sure that they'll survive the spacewalk first. Yeah, it's just
3: one thing getting in the history books, but you don't want to get in history books for the wrong reason. <laughs>
2: You guys are far north enough. Can you guys see uh, Aurora Borealis from where you are? Not including light pollution, of course. Uh, From here, no. Uh, No? You need need to be a bit
3: further north of the country to be able to see it. We were supposed to get some really good views from the UK, but I think you need to be in Northumberland or Scotland or somewhere like that um, to be able to see them properly.
2: Oh, well. Every now and then I get a report that NASA expects that it could even come down as far south as where we are. We've got so much light pollution around here, there's no chance. But, uh, well, NASA decided to do a test up in Norway. Have you seen the video of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, that is neat to see. It was a test where NASA launched two rockets using their Auroral Zone Upwelling Rocket Experiment, which, of course, has to have an acronym of Azure. <sighs> So they launched from two Norwegian bases, and once they got up into the aurora, they discharged tracers of trimethyl aluminum and a mixture of barium and strontium. So the sunlight will ionize those, or just energy from the auroras will energize those and turn them into charged particles, because they wanted to check out the winds that the aurora creates. And so when you watch the video, you see all of a sudden you see the aurora there, and all of a sudden you just see this blast of, what would you call that, purple? Uh, yeah, I guess you would. You see some like a lighter blue tracers underneath and then just this big explosion of purple. And it's it just looks like alien clouds if you want to look at it that way. But then they use that to provide data on how those particle travels through the ionosphere. And it, it all comes down to analyzing how the uh, the northern lights, you know, how they affect wind and, and so on. Up in the upper atmosphere. That was just a, a that's a cool thing to see. You know, on the surface it's like, well, what does that have to do with anything? But so what? It's cool to look at. And analyzing wind patterns, why not? It is kind of spooky though, if you have it on on freeze frame, it looks like these two big purple eyes that are, are like crying blue tears. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's like the Aurora's crying for us. It must watch global news then. <sighs> I don't know if you've seen the photograph
3: of um, the surviving Apollo astronauts. They did a, a photo shoot recently, and they're all in their DJs, usual kind of black and white stuff, apart from Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> who has to outshine everybody. Uh, and he wore this silver suit with what looked like moons all over it. <laughs> and a pair of socks that one had stars on it and the other one had stripes on it. Oh, my um, God, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it's, it's an amazing photograph. It really is.
2: Yeah, everybody's looking all, you know, stoic and professional and he's just like, Pfft, whatever. Yeah, I'm gonna wear what I want to wear. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> he, he, <laughs> that is awesome. Now
3: he's already made news for his bold fashion choices in the past, particularly uh, during, bold during fashion men, choices. Yeah, <laughs> in Men's Fashion Week in 2017, <laughs> uh, when uh, he took to the runway with none other than Bill Nye. Okay, oh god! But the event that this photograph was from wasn't all about bus Aldrin, though, uh, in a, in a panel discussion, astronauts discussed their sometimes harrowing journeys, including what it was like to drive the rover on the moon's surface, and uh, another about how Aldrin and Armstrong were nearly stranded on the moon's surface, only to be miraculously saved by a felt tip pen. Now, I looked up about this felt tip pen. Have you heard the story about? No, I tip? haven't. No. <laughs> well, apparently. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were gathering themselves into the landing module to start the return home when Buzz noticed something lying on the floor. It was a circuit breaker switch that had gotten bumped into and broken off during the to in and fro in in the cramped environment. Ooh. As luck would have it, it wasn't any old switch. It was the switch to the circuit breaker that activated the ascent engine that would lift them off the moon to rendezvous with Mike Collins, who was orbiting overhead in the Columbia.
2: What?
3: (laughs) Now, if they couldn't get that breaker pushed back in, they'd have to figure something else out, or they'd be left on the moon. So they told Mission Control about it and tried to go to sleep, and obviously unsuccessfully, they couldn't get any sleep. The next morning, no solution was forthcoming, so Aldrin relates about this in his book he said since everything was electrical I decided not to put my finger in or use anything that had a metal bit on the end of it but I had a felt tip pen in my shoulder pocket of my suit that might do the job after moving the countdown procedure up by a couple of hours in case it didn't work I inserted the pen into the small opening where the circuit breaker switch would have been and pushed it in sure enough the circuit breaker held and we were going to get off the moon after all oh wow (laughs) holy cow (laughs) and that's not the first time I've heard a story about a pen Uh, um, there was one where uh, a light was flashing and they reported it back to mission control and they said yeah we are aware of the flashing situation nothing to worry about just tap it with your pen and they said, "Okay." So they tapped it with the pen, and the light stopped flashing. Okay, then. This is what they were dealing with back then.
2: <laughs> wow! Yeah, so I never heard that one either. When
3: when I when I read about that and they mentioned about <laughs> this felt tip pen, I thought, "What felt tip pen?" So I looked it up, and I went, "Oh my god!"
2: <laughs> wow! I bet Buzz is full of so many stories. Oh, I'll bet. Too bad he's way too popular to come on our show. Uh, yeah. I would like
3: to speak to an Apollo
2: astronaut, though. Yeah.
3: Whilst we still can. Yeah, there's that. Now, the most famous fashion doll in the world, Barbie, has just celebrated her 60th birthday. And to mark this occasion, Issa and Barbie have worked in partnership to create two one-of-a-kind dolls in the likeness of Issa astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. I do remember reading this. The two dolls, one wearing a stylized reproduction of her um, EVA suit, and the second in the usual blue flight suit that most of the uh, astronauts wear, uh, with the patches and all that kind of stuff on there, was first shown by Mattel Italia at a special event on International Day of the Girl on the 11th of October 2018. But in March of this year... The two dolls were on display at the Women's Day Gala of the Professional Women International in Brussels at the Elle magazine Power Girl event in Paris. Now, these are not commercially available to the public, but these dolls have been created to highlight careers that are underrepresented by women and are being showcased to raise awareness, being featured at events and in marketing campaigns to show girls the many opportunities open to them. ESA's communications partnership unit arranged for these two unique Samantha Cristoforetti figures to be used by Barbie Mattel Italia to promote their long term Dream Gap project. Now this project focuses on recent research that has shown that due to cultural stereotypes and media representations young girls start to think as they grow up that they are not suitable for certain types of activity ESA's chief diversity officer Ursula Valdu says that one of ESA's goals is to be the source of inspiration for all of Europe's citizens fighting stereotypes and encouraging girls and young women to pursue their dreams whatever they may be ESA's Astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti said, I'm very happy that Barbie dolls nowadays reflect not only the body shape of real women, but also the full range of their professional achievements. I hope this will help girls and boys to imagine their future without being constrained by artificial
2: limits that have no place in our time. I'm just going to throw this out there. They really do need to sell this. It's pretty cool, isn't it? it it's very cool. I know that my youngest daughter would love love to get something like that. I've got an app on my phone that tells me when the space station will be flying overhead, as long as it's bright enough to make it worth, go out and see it. And every time, as long as, you know, it's not too cold out or anything, all I have to do is say, hey guys, space station's about to fly overhead. She's one of the first ones out the door to look for it. And every time that space station goes across, she's like, I can't believe that's the space station. I also bought her the uh, Women of Space little Lego set. Lego set, yeah, yeah. She went nuts with it. She loved it. I got her a model of a space shuttle. She immediately started to put it together. Make this thing available to the public, and then donate the proceeds to some kind of uh, charity that is used to educate girls about space careers or or scientific careers, you know, STEM, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Use it for that. Don't just say, well, no, it's not going to be available for sale because it's a production. No. Sell the damn thing and give the proceeds to to a a STEM charity. But it looks like Samantha Cristoforetti, and a lot of these figures
3: don't look anything like the person they're supposed to be. No, they don't. (laughs)
2: don't. But it does. Uh. It
3: really does look like her.
2: Sell this thing. Oh, well, what can you do?
3: (laughs) Right. We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, I'm going to be talking to a special guest.
5: I'm Dr. Ryan Kobrick, Assistant Professor of Spaceflight Operations at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. I believe that we should all think globally and act locally, and I hope that everyone has amazing Yuri's Night parties. Rock the planet. Hi, I'm Alan Stern, and I'm based at the Southwest Research Institute's offices in Boulder, Colorado. But today, I'm speaking to you from New Horizons Mission Operations Control Center at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab in Laurel, Maryland. I'm the leader of NASA's Pluto New Horizons mission. I'm also an active suborbital researcher, and I'm a founder of space companies, including Wingu, Worldview, and Golden Spike. I've been attending Yuri's Night parties since 2007. I've also recorded videos for Yuri's Night several times, and I did a Google Hangout with Yuri's Night leaders last year in support of New Horizons. In fact, back in 2011, I did a Yuri's Night video for the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. Yuri's Night celebrates the birth of human spaceflight and the first time any human left Earth's cradle for space. But it represents even more than that to me. It also represents the worldwide excitement about human spaceflight and the belief that spaceflight of all kinds will be a fundamental part of the future of human society. The flyby of Pluto saw the largest single public response to a NASA mission in decades. That viral response to exploration, turning a point of light into a planet in just a matter of weeks, was a strong signal that people love pioneering space exploration of all kinds. If we can capitalize on that, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. Celebrating Yuri's Night brings us together as a community and it gives us an opportunity to engage the public in just that kind of excitement about space exploration. So let's work to make sure that 50 years from today, Yuri's Night is celebrated by people living and working in locales across the solar system. Paiachali.
2: Blast off into the podosphere with TGP Nominal.
3: So joining me on the line is... Gareth Jones. Well, you might not know that name, you probably do. A lot of people should know that name if you've been listening to the podcast for long enough. Gareth, happy Yuri's
1: Night. Uh, thank you very much indeed, and uh, Nostrovia to you too, I suppose. Is that the right <laughs> thing to say, I should say? Something in Russian, really. Uh, not that I can speak Russian, you understand. But Or as Yuri Gagarin once said, payakoli. Payakoli? Is that some sort of uh, Russian dish involving broccoli <laughs> in a pie? It's
3: uh, what he actually said when, when he lifted off. It just basically means, let's go.
1: Payakoli. <laughs> I, I'm going to look that up and I'm going to use that from now on. Yeah, because <laughs> what, whatever Yuri did as, was cool. You know, he is the epitome of cool. Really, the the, the bravest and the first to literally, as we've said many many times, go where no one has gone before.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, to think that he had no idea what he was letting himself in for. I mean, it doesn't matter how much training you do; nothing can prepare you for what he actually did.
1: Now, I think as they say in uh, the theme tune to Star Trek Enterprise, you have to have faith of the heart, but not really of the heart. You've got to have faith in science of the people around you to make that sort of leap, haven't you?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I've been looking into the whole story, and uh, obviously you've got uh, Sergei Korilov, who was the chief designer of the Russian space programme. Yeah. Uh, and the, the people in authority didn't want to give Yuri any kind of manual override whatsoever but Sergei actually sneaked a code to Yuri so that if anything was to happen he could override the system
1: Good man If memory serves, Torolev had a nickname for the Soviet cosmonauts he called them his little birdies. And I think that's a real insight into possibly Russian culture, but certainly the the affection with which Korolov held for his initial space Fareers. In the United States, they were given the nickname the Mercury Seven, you know, Mercury, a wind messenger, a god. These were superheroes, you know, they were packaged like the Marvel comics you do know, these days. Whereas in the Soviet Union, there was a sort of a more gentle affection. My little birdies, there's a quaintness and a sweetness that you can read into that. And I think that's to be applauded.
3: Strangely, that's kind of evolved over the years because the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I've mentioned this in, in previous episodes, they made a play about Sergei Korilov's life about the time when he was in the Gulag onwards. And they've kind of made the Little Birdies a, a bit more stronger in its approach because it's called Little Eagles.
1: A giant leap, you might say, between a Little Birdie <laughs> and an eagle, yeah.
3: <laughs> but it is absolutely brilliant and, and sad in many respects because, um, as as you know, uh, Sergei Korolev never got the respect that he... He should have got until after he died.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah, one of the, the great pioneers, uh, one of the greatest engineers, uh, you know, not just the, an engineer of space technology, but an engineer of the concept of spacefaring. You know. Yeah, definitely.
3: So, I mean, I've asked this of many people in the past. The concept of Yuri's Night. Well, what does that kind of mean to
1: you? Well, it, for me, it's kind of personal. I was born weeks after. Um, Yuri's flight, which was April 12, 61, so I've always described myself as a child of the space age, born in the year that humans left uh, this planet for the very first time, and it's become part of my identity I suppose, so Yuri's night is a, a, a personal thing I, I can't remember if I told you this before but I met Alexei Leonov once he was over in Britain for uh, an anniversary of the moon landing uh, he was taking part in a programme that my partner Violet Berlin was working on and Violet said he you've got to come and have coffee with Alexei Leonov. And um, I went and had coffee with him, and he did a little drawing of the Lunar Corrible, I think it was called, the Lunar Lander, the Soviet Lunar Lander. And and he was utterly, utterly charming. And I was blown away by meeting, you know, a modern-day Columbus, you might say. Uh, But I I never got to meet Yuri, unfortunately. He was dead long before um, I was making programmes and in a position to meet these revered people, but I got close. I met Alexei Leonov, so it kind of feels personal. I, I have a, a hat, a sort of a hunter's cap, a tartan sort of Canadian Alaskan looking thing, but as the badge, I've got the Intercosmos badge on it, which was the Soviet program to invite people from every nation on the planet to fly with them to space, and in some ways, I'm as big a fan of the Soviet Program uh, as I was of the NASA program. I never really separated the two. And uh, when, when, if ever I'm out and I meet Russian people, the only thing I can talk to them about is the space program uh, of the Soviet Union in the 60s. You know, that, that's pretty much... Everything I know about the Soviet about Russia, if you like, or the Soviet Union, came from the space program. I taught myself how to read basic Cyrillic script by looking down the side of Revel models of Vostok and saying, oh, yeah, Botok, that must mean Vostok. So that C is pronounced an S and that B is pronounced a V. And oh, Zoyas, that's how you write Zoyas. Oh, that's how you write Cosmos. So um, it's a great way of engaging with the wider world having an interest and uh, space technology allowed me to engage with the soviet union and the heroes of the soviet union including yuri so yeah it it, it feels personal and yuri's night is a wonderful thing to celebrate Uh, not just that man and what he did but what he launched this program which went on and it's still going on to this day of uh, people continuing to leave this planet you know um, I love pioneers I love early adopters and he was the earliest adopter of them all yeah
3: definitely and I can kind of relate to where you're coming from there for two reasons I mean I was I, I'm, I'm a bit younger than you but i uh, I was born in in 73. Yep. Uh, I can kind of relate to these kids that have always known someone living in space because, you know, when I was born... We had um, Skylab? Missions. Skylab was yep. Yep. up there. And my actual birthday, I share with Valentina Tereshkova's launch. Oh,
1: how wonderful. What a, what a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, my birthday, I don't think I have any... Space connections with my birthday, but um, I share a birthday with uh, Huey Lewis, as in Huey Lewis and the News, so no connection there for me, I wish I shared a birthday, actually, actually, hold on a moment, I think, you know, was it Sojourner, Uh, was the first Mars lander with a rover? That may have landed, if not on my birthday, July the 5th, July the 4th, which of course is July the 5th in the UK. That's about as close as date as I can remember.
3: <laughs> but Gareth, your career, I mean, you've interviewed some amazing people when it comes to the space i mean you were talking about Leonov just now i mean didn't you chat with buzz aldrin
1: twice i interviewed him over the radio for a bbc five live program i was doing called spaced out in the uh, middle 90s and then i invited him over to britain to take part in a program I made for the BBC, uh, BBC Children's Programme, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the moon landing. And uh, we went for a walk together uh, on the roof of Television Centre, BBC Television Centre, in Wood Lane, in Shepherd's Bush. And we had a bit of a walk and a bit of a chat, and it was one of the greatest privileges of my entire life. In fact, I'd been up in Scotland working on How To, another program I was doing at the time, and. <laughs> I interrupted filming and that to come to London to do this interview with Buzz. I'd arranged for him to be flown over from California and I did the interview and then flew back to Scotland that night and the plane flew up the west coast of Britain and it flew over Wales and we went over North Wales and as I looked out the window I could see below the Dee estuary. I was brought up on the banks of the River Dee in North Wales in a little town called Hollywell. I could see where my hometown was and up in the sky it was a beautiful clear summer's evening i could see a child's moon you know a little sliver of a, of a moon and and i remember on the night of the the moon landing my father waking me up to watch it live in the middle of the night and then going out into the garden to look at the moon with my dad and then on that plane i was able to look at the moon i could look down i could see the place where i was when i saw that and earlier that day i'd been having a conversation with one of the two men who made that journey who made that piece of history it was one of the most profound moments of my life i have to admit i cried my eyes out tears 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 rolling down my face it was wonderful it was a real high point in my career but i have spoken to others as well i've interviewed gene cernan over the phone I've interviewed Jim Lovell over the phone. I'm trying to think if I've interviewed any shuttle Noughts. I don't think I have. Uh, I've interviewed a few people who worked on the shuttle program, but no astronauts. I think that's it. So yeah, Lovell, Aldrin, Cernan, uh, Alexei Leonov. Those are my my big four. I just remembered I left someone out. I, I left Helen Sharman out. Britain's first. First. Astronaut. Yeah. Don't let anyone yeah. tell you it's Tim Peak. It was lovely Helen Sharman, quite something.
3: I haven't actually had the opportunity to interview many NASA astronauts, but the one person we did get on the show for our Yuri's Night episode a few years back was Richard Garriott.
1: Garriott? When, when, when
3: was that? What was the circumstances under which you spoke? Well, I just actually approached him on Twitter and said, would you like to come on our Yuri's Night show? And he went, yeah, sure. Fantastic. Um, So we we did it in two parts, because my co-host, John, he's a massive video gamer, and for him talking to Richard Garriott is like talking to God because of his input into the role playing game industry back in the early 80s that's how he made his millions so John's like I've got all your games and you know it's like oh here we go he's going to go in complete schoolboy mode with this I think he was with us for about 90 minutes in total the stuff he was telling us about growing up because obviously his dad was on Skylab um, Owen, Owen Garriott and he was telling us that obviously you live in those suburbs in the NASA suburbs and everybody you know is in the space industry yep. and, you, and you think that's just normal yep. until, until you go to high school and then everybody else is dads are like postman and policemen and
1: yeah well they they call it the space coast i remember when i spent time in florida the uh, local newspaper or the the state newspaper florida today is 90% space related news because you know the space industry doesn't happen in isolation uh, the spin-offs from it you know the support services uh, every time a new program is launched. that's money that not just goes into the, the launching of the vehicle but the you know it, it's cash for the people who work on security on the gate it's people who deliver food to the launch site you know there's an increased number of people and it spins out it spins out you know the, 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 i don't know what the figures are like but i would imagine it's a hundredfold for the number of people directly working in space, or even a thousandfold people around it providing spin-offs or support services. It's a huge industry.
3: This is the reason why the NASA facilities are scattered about across the US, is so that everybody could get a piece of the action when it comes to procurement and all that kind of thing that goes along with space program
1: yeah that's exactly right yeah share the love uh, and make sure you've got everybody on side you know that the every state will then vote for you if you're the senator who gave kansas gave alabama gave texas gave florida all the southern states where industry wasn't huge if you give them a huge injection by giving them industry then next time around when it's voting time they'll vote for the senator or the party that provided that yeah it's back to politics again but that's how it works The, the
3: kind of people i have interviewed
1: is a guy called eric
3: smith now that name might not mean a lot to you but he is the director of the james webb space telescope program oh right well, I didn't because I was away, but John interviewed uh, Dr. Michelle Fowler, who is a big voice for NASA, and she's heavily involved with the, the Hubble Space Telescope, and uh, lots of different people at NASA that we've we've had on the show, which has, has been brilliant over the years. And I've also interviewed Matt Taylor, who was the uh, chief investigator for the Rosetta mission.
1: Right, wow, you've had some real heavyweights on, so I I have to thank you for uh, finding time tonight to have me on just as a a fanboy. That's all I am. I'm (laughs) I'm just a space fanboy.
3: As you know, I I grew up watching the shows that you were on, especially one show in particular which you know I used to love, which was Get Fresh. Uh (laughs) And uh, you used to have a lot of space-related stuff on that show,
1: yeah. Well, um, today I received a DVD in the post. I did uh, a project for Time Tees Television recently, and I, I said to them while I was talking to them, "Oh, you know, there's one episode of Get Fresh I don't have. It was an episode made by Time Tees Television because, you know, as you know, Get Fresh is made by a different ITV company every week." And uh, they sent me a DVD of this episode today and I had a quick glance at it and on the program I'm wearing a NASA jacket with uh, all my mission patches on there and uh, it, it just shines through. I've got a NASA hat on, I've got a Navy jacket with mission patches, I've got Apollo 1, I've got STS-51L on there and uh, Apollo 13. So it's kind of shown respect for those which didn't go as well as the other missions. I've kind of
3: done the same with a jacket, actually. I've got one with STS-107. Yeah, on it, you know the the patch that the astronauts wear with the wings on it. Yeah, I've got one of those with my name and my call sign underneath it. So uh... nice.
1: Well, hey, when I um, was working on Spaced Out, this program for Five Live, we went to Space Camp in Belgium. Oh wow! And I was able to. I went in. They've got a wet F facility there, a big tank, which I was able to go in and and do some stuff, and then. Uh, I spent some time in a multi-axis chair, and they gave me a, um, sort of, uh, it's, it's a mock shuttle all-in-one suit, you know, just a kind of blue overalls, like a flight suit. Uh, But I've got that today, and I I wear that whenever I'm doing any decoration and painting around the house. I'm (laughs) such a space geek. Any excuse to wear a space uniform and pretend I really got to be the astronaut I always set out to be as a boy, but never quite made it.
3: (laughs) I'd like to point out to the listeners um, who... Uh, A lot of our listeners might not know some of the old Garbage Pod episodes, but the first interview we actually did on the Garbage Pod was Gareth. And uh, we always used to subtitle all of our episodes. And the subtitle for that episode was The First Welshman on the Moon. That's
1: right. That was my mission statement. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to do. That, that, that's what got me onto television, as you know. I never quite made the moon, but there's still time. What was that space thing you did with Phil Cornwell? Oh, that was a programme we made uh, that was shown on Channel 4 called Over the Moon. It was that program in which I interviewed Helen Sharman, Heinz Wolf, Jerry Anderson and uh, Eugene CERNAN for that show and it was a kind of an offbeat slightly nutty space programme, but the idea was to make uh, space science entertaining and interesting for a younger audience, so we we were a bit sort of left field with it, it was aimed at younger people, and uh, and it was that programme which ultimately led to me making uh, a show called An Afternoon on the Moon, which was a really huge production for the BBC, and they were both shown on the same day, we actually made Over the Moon as a pilot, and it was never intended for broadcast but we showed it to the BBC and the BBC said oh come and make um, an afternoon on the moon for us then and we did that which was sort of a big live extravaganza with lots of recorded input as well I made a feature about John F. Kennedy Space Centre and uh, went and interviewed Buzz Aldrin Uh, But after the BBC contracted us to make that programme, we then got a call from Channel 4 to say, oh, we've seen this tape that you sent us of Over the Moon. Can we show that? Uh, Yes, of course. And we we said, and they, they showed it on the same day. As um, afternoon on the moon. So on the what was the 25th anniversary? Ex- almost exactly 25. Well, yeah, 25 years, 24 years, and what three months away? Let's say that uh, from today, I had two space programs on rival channels. On the same day, and at the same time was making a radio program for uh, BBC Five Live about space so yeah that was my that was my space arc, my suborbital lob has now come down to earth i think yeah i 've splashed down in the uh, in the Atlantic Ocean since (laughs) then.
3: Well, I've got an event I'm actually helping out with in July to do with the moon landing. It's actually called Moon Day, together with the guys at the UK Astronomy Group, and they're going to be teaching the kids about the the moon itself. And they said to me, well, we, we know about astronomy and planets and the moon and things, but we don't know a lot about the spacecraft. Right. Can you come in and do something? Good lad.
1: So yes, go and share your knowledge, and it's clear to me that you have plenty of it.
3: It's something I wanted to do. I know. I knew one day that I, I'd never be a, a, an astronaut. That was one thing I wanted to either be an astronaut or get into broadcasting of some description. So, um this is as close as I well, get this,
1: this is proper <laughs> broadcasting definitely um, on the anniversary the 50th anniversary of the moon landing uh, I'm going to be in the United States I think this year on the actual oh. day so wow. that's going to be quite something, yeah. And I
3: understand from what I've seen on the different tweets, they're bringing back um, Stargazing Live for part of it as well. Is
1: that right? Oh, I know Brian has been out filming in... Um, where was he? Was he in Marshall Space Flight Centre or was he in John F. Kennedy? I, he was standing in front of a, a Saturn V recently. Uh, I think that might have been Kennedy, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, they'll be doing something for that. So um, I look forward to seeing that. i, I If I don't catch it live, I'll catch it on the iPlayer when I get back from the States.
3: So that was the uh, first part of the chat that I had with Gareth Jones. Now, John, what did you make of that?
2: What did he do because
3: i'm a yankee gareth has worked on quite a few different shows um he has worked on tomorrow's world which i know you're aware of tomorrow's that, world yep that one i know of he also did a, a show for kids called how to which was a remake of a 1970 show which was called how which was well how do things work kind of thing mm. it was more of a science program for children and they resurrected it in the 1990s and They got one of the original presenters, a guy called Fred Dynage, to come back on the show, and they wanted um, a modern face to go along with it. So they had Fred Dynage, Gareth, and Carol Vorderman, who, when it comes to mathematics, is an absolute genius. Between the three of them, they were doing a kind of a STEM show for kids. He also did Saturday morning TV shows over here called Get Fresh, which was where I knew Gareth from, which covered all manner of different bits and pieces. It was like a magazine-style show which was set in a... Spacecraft that landed in a different town each week, called the Millennium
2: Dustbin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that that sounds like something that would be on. Um... Oh, damn it! I can't remember the name of the show now. Ah, Red. Red. Um... Oh, Red Dwarf. Red
3: Dwarf. That's it. Mm-hmm. Red. It, it was a similar kind of shape of a of a spacecraft actually, and they had this this uh, this alien uh, on there called Gilbert the Alien. <laughs> he was a green horrible thing that snot was coming out of his nose and um yep. yeah he talked complete gibberish most of the time it was yeah, a bit demented but everyone loved gilbert it's difficult to understand why when you actually see him i'll have to i'll have to put a clip of of gilbert in the show notes because he was such a weird character gareth was on this show called get fresh and as i say they, they had a lot of um, space-related articles and things that were on there. So they, he used to do interviews with a lot of different people involved with the space industry, and um, that's where he got his love for a lot of the stuff that he did. He's uh, a space enthusiast, uh, a science television presenter, and um, now he does uh, a podcast about anything with engines in Nice. Pretty much. Uh, and it's called Gareth
2: Jones on Speed. <laughs> nice. Uh, and you know, someone was on speed or on some really serious kind of drugs they shouldn't have been on when they designed that Gilbert creature. He's a bit of freaky, isn't he? I just looked it up. My retinas are burning. <laughs> Who? Is at- Why?
3: Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, I'm try, I'll i try and describe. He's green with big, sticky-out ears and a kind of like a mohawk thing going on. And, uh, and
2: what, what looked like trumpets coming out for his ears. Yeah. He looks like he's <laughs> seriously diseased. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> but he was good fun. <laughs> I, I hope so. Wow.
3: <laughs> Cannot unsee. In the photograph, you can't really tell, but it, there's constant, like, snot coming out of his nose. It was almost, you know, like in Alien, where you got, when that thing opens its mouth and there's all that gooey stuff. It's like that, but it comes out of his nose. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> it was the 80s. What can I say? <laughs> uh, oh God, was he living in a cardboard box, too? It's been a long time since we've talked about that Yeah
3: (laughs) And of course On the the same date as Yuri Gagarin's You know, historic flight We've also got the first flight of uh, STS-1
1: The Columbia but you know i had forgotten that and i remember watching well the attempted launch because it was rescheduled if i remember the uh, first launch uh, i sat with uh, the family i lived with in north wales i think was this 1981 if memory serves yeah and um we sat and watched for hours and hours and hours as they prepped for launch and then it was scrubbed and then i think they went was it a day or two later and i again we watched the whole thing live i'm wondering with the scrub of that
3: launch whether they did it on purpose because the scrub made it so that the launch was on April the twelfth. <laughs> I, I didn't have a lot of time with my grandfather, but one thing I do remember was sitting there watching the first shuttle launch with him. Uh, we was you know sat in his living room watching it, and then a, a couple of years later, he said, "Right, we're going on a field trip," and he wouldn't tell me where we were going. Eventually I realised we were going to Stansted and I thought, well, why are we going to Stansted? We're not flying off anywhere, are we? Uh, he said, no, we we'll just wait here and you'll see. And the Enterprise on top of the shuttle transporter landed at Stansted Airport and it was amazing.
1: I love your grandad. I would love to have seen that. I, I, yeah, that would have been... That was 83. Wow, how exciting. I remember flying into the Gambia in 1986 and uh, NASA were using Banjul as an abort facility because it was more or less the same latitude as Florida, that if the shuttle failed to make orbit, one of the first places it could land was the other side of the Atlantic, and that's on the west coast of Africa, and it would have been the Banjul Airport. But unfortunately, the security at Banjul Airport wasn't terribly good. And all all the uh, support facilities that NASA had put there, stuff like that giant fan that they used to blow any unpleasant vapors away from the space shuttle orbiter when it lands and things like um, the stairs and all that that was all stolen from the airport and, and so uh, NASA uh, I'm ditched that idea and I'm not sure what they made their bailout facility in the end it may have been Morocco in the end I think if memory serves but that was a long time ago
3: but there's quite a few sites around the world where the shuttle could ditch if it needed to I mean obviously I know there's that one in Spain that regularly came up during launches to say yes we can make it to the Spanish site if need be but there was two sites in the UK and I think Stansted was one of them and I th- I think it was Fairford R A F Fairford was the
1: other right. runway. So wouldn't it be wonderful to see uh, an orbiter land in, in Stansted Airport and then roll to one of the gates and pull up alongside one of those Ryanair flights that go from there <laughs> to board using the uh, the what do they call it the Skywalk? The, uh, that would be hilarious. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that advert for um, I think it was a Specsavers where the shuttle landed at Luton. <laughs> oh right, yes. Because somebody couldn't see where they were supposed to be landed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd pay good money to see that. The Soviet space programme has a history of scheduling launches to coincide with important dates. The very first Zoya's mission, with a craft that was unready, was uh, scheduled for May Day, um, a great anniversary for the Soviet Union. And as we know, that didn't go too well, whereas uh, NASA generally go when they're ready. Which brings me to Mike Pence's announcement about hurrying things up with the SLS to get to the moon. That doesn't seem very wise to me. We've learned in the past. Um, I, I remember an op- a period when the Republicans had control over the NASA funding and Reagan uh, declared the uh, space shuttle or the space transportation system uh, as commercially ready and viable and that wasn't the case and look where that led. Uh, And I'm concerned that history will repeat itself and you can't say, oh, just do it, but do it quicker. You know, these are people's lives that we're dealing with.
3: I honestly don't think that the SLS is going to take off. The Orion will. The Orion will. But uh, I I honestly think... Orion will end up going on commercial vehicles.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, NASA is obliged to take the lowest bidder on a government contract. That's written in their edict, as far as as I understand. And if people like ULA and uh, SpaceX can provide vehicles powerful enough to do the tasks Required of them to lift uh, Orion out of Earth orbit into lunar orbit and beyond to asteroids, then NASA will be obliged to put that vehicle on top of another launch vehicle. And you know, I'm not the first to say, Well, what is SLS for? because there are plenty of other vehicles which can put heavy enough payloads on the moon if you want to go and set up a a lunar base but while they're talking about doing this in four or five years they don't have a lunar lander no one is developing with the exception of the Chinese a crude lunar lander at the moment no one and so I can't see it happening it's it's not just pie in the sky; it's it's pie in space.
3: I like the enthusiasm for it, but you've got to think realistic.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's Mike Pence staking his claim to be the next Republican candidate after Trump. I would imagine he's trying to leave a mark so he's remembered. It's PR, and that's not what space is for.
3: Well, we've jokingly called DSLS on the on the show. We actually call it the Senate Launch System. There so, it is, uh,
1: exactly. It was. <laughs>
3: What did you make of the launch of the Crew Dragon?
1: It went impeccably well. I was astonished with it hitting every single mark in its timeline on time. And as far as I'm aware, not that I've read into the data, but nothing went wrong whatsoever. Nothing was anything other than nominal. And I think that's amazing, and uh, it bodes very well for a crew riding that little bucket to space uh, before the end of this year, which uh, I should be thrilled to see.
3: I found it quite ironic, though, that the first person to actually enter that craft, when it docked, was a Canadian, and a a French-Canadian at that. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Space, the final frontier, these are the voyages of TGP Nominal and its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news, to explore the world of sci-fi, comic-con, and gaming, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before.
3: There's a, a, a lot going on in the space industry, I mean, it's getting quite an exciting time for the UK space industry as well, isn't it?
1: There's been talk of uh, launches from Scotland, there's talk of possibly Virgin flying from Cornwall or other locations in the UK, which is all good, yeah, I mean love to see launches from britain it might not be the best location for launches simply because of our location in the atlantic and the weather systems that come with that here but if you can launch here go for it because cornwall are
3: going to be launching them on the bottom of plane horizontally rather than a vertical launch yeah but they're also thinking of doing it at uh, Glasgow Prestwick yeah. and Snowdonia.
1: Oh, really? In uh, Llanbedr? Is it Llanbedr Airfield? I'm trying to remember what it's called now. I drove past I, it very excitedly. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And
3: um, that, that actually tickled me when, when I heard that part, because I remember when we joked about it uh, a little while back, about if there was a Welsh space programme... Yes. Then the rockets would have to be double the size to fit the lettering on the side correct yes
1: well the (laughs) thing about Wales I for many years have gone camping with friends and uh, we do this thing in August where a bunch of us pitch our tents in a big circle sometimes as many as 90 of us and we all sit round a campfire late at night singing songs and looking up into the sky and we, we started doing it in Dorset and eventually graduated to do it in Wales and we found that the skies in Wales because of so little light pollution because of the low levels of population density that the skies were very, very clear and I, I coined a phrase at one point that the best thing about Wales is if you sit outside at night you can see that Wales is actually in space <laughs> you know, you just got to just got to look up to see that so yeah it makes perfect sense to launch from sandbetter uh, um uh, yeah, I, I, you should launch a dragon from there, really. You think about it, we have oh, dragons yeah, in Wales, it?
3: yeah. Yeah, a red dragon at that. Correct. <laughs> now, some of the companies that are taking part in the the UK side of it, there's there's a company called Skyrora. Have you have you heard of those? I'm not familiar with them. They're going back to the roots of the British spaceflight industry because they're actually using hydrogen peroxide, just like the Black Arrow used to.
1: Right, well, that was a, a, a very... Uh, uh, manageable system. I mean, um, Virgin. If I unders- if our memory serves, doesn't um, uh, Spaceship Two use a combination of rubber and hydrogen peroxide as its yeah. fuel? It's not unusual. Yeah. So, it, you know, it was proven, or, or well, it was certainly um, tested in uh, the British space programme, and if it works, yeah, do it. Also, gives you nice bleached blonde hair as well, if you spill a bit. If you spill
3: uh, that much of it, because I, th- <laughs> I think it's like 5% on peroxide hair colouring, but if you do it as a rocket, it's something like 85%, so there's, there's a little bit of difference yeah. in the... Yeah. No, you, have, you, have,
1: you have white hair for about a second, then you have no hair, then no skin on your head whatsoever. <laughs> um, isn't uh, this the the, the substance that's used in torpedo motors, as well, I think. Is it, is it HTTP? Is that what they call it? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And that was pretty corrosive. Um, and also, if it gets wet, I think it becomes very volatile, which uh, so if you think about it, it's probably not the best place to have it on board a, a submarine. I think it may have actually played forgive me if, if I'm remembering this wrong, but I think it may have played a part in the sinking of the Kursk, the uh, Russian submarine. I think HTTP was to blame for that. so yeah, volatile stuff. Probably perfect rocket fuel.
3: Then there's another company called Orbex, and they are working in conjunction with Calagas to create a biopropane.
1: Oh, interesting. I'd heard that they'd been working away quietly on something and uh, weren't sort of a great PR company. They'd done quite a lot <laughs> of work behind the scenes, as it were, and were mm-hmm. much closer to to active launches than anyone realised and pretty well funded uh, as I understand but I haven't been following uh, their activities terribly closely I tend to follow crude space programmes more closely than anything else, that's where yeah. the excitement is for me.
3: And and the thing is with this company I think, if I remember rightly the previous director of the European Space Agency is on the team Excellent, good, yeah you're so a bit, big, big authority Yeah, definitely and there's a couple of others as well. There's another one that call themselves Black Arrow Space Technologies. Uh, they're doing sea-based launches.
1: Oh, yes. Now, that's something I approve of. I think that is a very intelligent way to go about putting uh, rockets in space. I think uh, sea launch, What I know it didn't go all terribly well for them every time, but just the sheer... Thunderbird's appeal of having um, a converted ship with a letterbox in the side that you can push out a, a launch vehicle onto a raft and then put it onto a converted oil platform and launch that into space. That's just way cool. And launching at sea makes a lot of sense. What was the name of that massive rocket that was supposed to be launched at sea that was designed way back in the 1960s, bigger than Apollo Saturn 5 bigger than Nerva? And uh, that was supposed to be launched subaquatically, I think, like Polaris. Always oh, on the tip of my tongue. Hang on, Violet is on a computer in the other side of the room. I wonder if she would do a quick search for me. While Violet's doing that, doing some research, we can Sea Dragon. Thank you. Oh uh, right, yes, of course, yes. Thank you, Violet. Good job she's here. Sorry, I may have gone (laughs) off topic there. You were talking about Scottish launches, and uh, yeah, it should be called uh, McSpace, shouldn't it? The (laughs) McNASA.
3: At the moment, when I think about sea-based launches, is these um, what I call DIY rocketeers—the Copenhagen suborbitals. They are amazing, self-funded. They all have daytime jobs and at the weekend they're building rockets and they're getting bigger and bigger and they, within 15 years they want to launch somebody into space.
1: Excellent. Good luck with them with that. I mean, if they can find, yeah, the, thing, the trick would be to find a Russian and do it on uh, Yuri's Night next year. That that would be an event wouldn't it? Are they ready for next year?
3: They just launched one last year so they're, they're, they've been putting some videos together as a, as a kind of a briefing and, and, and that kind of stuff. But all of their recovery vessels and things are all named after russian parts of the space industry so there, there is one of them is called sputnik and you know it's uh...
1: fantastic respect <laughs> that's, that's wonderful
3: i approve of that holy also the green light has been given to the saber engine from um, reaction engines
1: yeah well <laughs> if they really 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 can deliver that there's a revolution uh, you know, it will reduce the cost of getting stuff to orbit. It will accelerate the uh, speed of any intercontinental flight. It uh, truly breakthrough if they can do it, and I hope they can.
3: I've just learned, and I, I'm quite excited about this, they're actually building a new testing facility just up the road here yep. at Westcott for it.
1: You'll be able to hear it from your house then?
3: Yeah, I used to when I was a kid. I used to hear the uh, what I thought was air raid sirens going off, and that was just to tell us that there was going to be a test, and then, yeah, everything started shaking.
1: How exciting.
2: That was cool, but I have to take issue with one thing. Okay? Okay. <laughs> As a geek and webmaster for 20 years, it is not HTTP. (laughs) HTTP is Hypertext Transfer Protocol. It is the basis on which all websites are designed. You guys are talking about HTTP, which is high-test peroxide. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Websites do not power rocket engines. <laughs> However, high test peroxide does. <laughs> so, I just, that was bugging me the whole time. It's like it's not HTTP. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I had to correct you on that one. Yeah, um, quite an
3: interesting concept, though.
2: Yeah, it is. It is
3: hydrogen peroxide as as uh, rocket fuel.
2: Well. Is it that the peroxide is the rocket fuel, or is that acting as the, oxidant, but yeah, the is oxidizer the to the actual fuel? Yeah,
3: it is. It's a, it's a combination. Yeah, that's so, what I
2: thought. Um, but it's, it is like 85%. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. That, that's a lot of hydrogen peroxide. Mm. But,
3: but it worked. The, I mean, we, we did it in 1971 when we, we launched the, the Black Arrow, and it worked perfectly. Mm-hmm. So why not use the same... Product to uh, to launch our new rockets.
2: Yeah, why not? I mean, if it's proven, it works. I didn't read up on it. What does that turn into once it's combusted? I mean, because if that's producing nothing but water vapor, which I think it does, that's even better.
3: Yeah, it's um, both of the the rocket components that they were t- we were talking about are bio friendly. So. Right. But the the other one was was a strange one. Um, the, the, the company that they're they're using is a company called Calagas, which is the company that you use to power your barbecues with. You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> propane. But, well, that's what we but, call it or, over here. Or butane, yeah, uh, or propane. Um, it's it's basically the same stuff, but a bio a, a bio propane. Huh. Uh, and that's what they're going to be using for the Orbex rockets.
2: Okay, that works. Very cheap, yeah. But it as easy. long as it provides the thrust they need, okay. yeah,
3: yeah. And it's been once again, it's been proven that it works. So uh, why not? And they're using the UK's biggest retailer for that product, Caligas, um, and they've they're, they've developed this bio version of it, so, so it's completely green.
2: Yeah, yeah. Why not? I didn't realize that that's the stuff that uh, that HTP was responsible for the Kursk incident.
3: Hmm. That was yeah. like
2: ooh, ouch! Yeah,
3: I, I love the way that uh, Gareth was very interested in the fact that, of sea, sea-based launches. Uh, it was like it was going back to the days of uh, the old Jerry
2: Anderson Thunderbird puppet type things. <laughs> is That's there you- a reason not to? I mean, is it more cost-effective to do it from land? But yes. you know, if you're worried about local population. Then from you know, from the ocean makes sense, but well, well, yeah. I mean, Suborbitals orbitals already did it. So yeah, yeah, definitely.
3: I mean, I I, I think I'll have to send Kara for a link to their videos actually, because some of their stuff is absolutely fantastic to watch. Um, even the breakdown of you know the brief debriefing after the after the
2: launch, um, they're fantastic videos too. Ooh, I just saw this on the the wiki for HTP. Since many common substances catalyze peroxides' exothermic decomposition into steam and oxygen, there's the answer. So when it's when it's combusted, it's steam and oxygen. Pretty green. Yep, <laughs> that's what you want these days. You want
3: it to be as clean as
2: you can get it. Honestly, it would have been nice if they found a way to do that before. But mm. I understand why it, it, it didn't happen. Especially in the 1960s, they didn't have time for that. No. Yeah they
3: they had a very small time scale to get that uh, that mission up there.
2: I'm still amazed by that Saturn V every time I think about it. Volume of just on both sides, all the stuff that was needed with so little computational power. And both sides managed to do it back in the 60s. Yeah. That's amazing.
3: But if you've seen the difference between the the lander that the Russians would have used compared with the um the landers that the for the apollo missions it's completely different because the the apollo stuff is very much um there was a lot of electronics involved with it there's a lot of buttons to press and all that kind of stuff on the russian versions it was all valves yeah and and knobs and, and things to, to turn off valves and stuff and it, it was a completely different setup
2: yeah the bottom looks similar Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it just looks like a big ball with a mushroom on the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: They actually had it on display in London um, a couple of years ago. They had a cosmonautics exhibition. And they had all these different Russian vehicles and things sent over from different museums in Russia, all to be shown at the Science Museum in London. And uh, the, the logistics of that must have been horrendous.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, wow, it looks like it was half the size of the U.S. lander, too. So that was tiny. But then if you've got
3: people that were like Yuri Gagarin, who wasn't exactly a big guy, he was right, quite tiny anyway. But uh, And they had uh, different things that um, Alexei Leonov supplied as well, because like Alan Bean... Uh, the Apollo astronaut, he was an artist, and Alexei Leonov was the first person to do an EVA. And he decided while he was up there to try and draw what he saw. The only things he had to actually draw with were colored pencils. Right. uh, Which he had attached to his wrist by string so they didn't float off. Makes sense. But it was really cool. Some of the pictures he actually drew when he was up there... Are in museums and things in Russia, so pretty cool. And so
2: some of the paintings that he did afterward are fantastic.
3: Mm.
2: Go back to Alan Bean. I, I love
3: the pictures that uh, Alan Bean has painted because not only has he um, painted them, but he actually used imprints from his boots from the moon to create texture in the
2: canvas. Oh, wow. So, they are amazing. <laughs> what we've talked about, that it really is about cooperation. Yeah. I'm looking at it now. One of the paintings that he he made uh, back in 74 was a Soyuz spacecraft docking with an, a, with an Apollo spacecraft. Mm-hmm. I think he was involved with that mission, actually, yep. if I remember rightly. Might have been. Yeah, we were enemies, kind of. But for that sort of thing, nah. We're all one big family. Yeah, when we're in
3: space, we're one big family. You need cooperation. If you don't, yeah. you're not going to survive.
1: Have you ever seen a live launch?
3: I have. What have you seen? I've seen a shuttle launch. No! Yeah.
1: Which one, do you remember?
3: Uh, uh, STS-101 back in 2000.
1: Wow. So it was that Atlantis? It was, yes. Marvellous. I've never seen uh, a, a, m- a crude launch. Uh, I, I saw, I think it may have been an Atlas II launch in 1994 when I was in Florida. But I wasn't at the Cape. Well, I was uh, at Cocoa Beach at the time, um, staying in a hotel at Cocoa Beach, making a documentary about the 25th anniversary of the moon landing. Um, we were working in the office writing up a script one day, and I heard this this crackle and the air around me was sort of fizzing and I said it's a rocket and we ran outside to the pool and watched <laughs> this atlas uh, arch across the sky with the whole sky boiling but nothing like watching uh, the shuttle go off wow
3: respect I've actually seen two shuttle launches one up close well as, as close as you can get on the complex and the second one I was actually in Orlando and we found out where you would be able to see the launch from and we were at a kind of like a grass verge next to a bus stop looking up at the sky and a group of German tourists came over to us and said what are you doing and we said we're waiting for a shuttle
1: <laughs> yeah one that's going to take you to the airport yeah
3: and they said what, what a real shuttle I said yeah he said look in that direction and we saw the plume go up and then we heard it about three minutes later.
1: Wow. Because it was some distance away, you don't realise. Similarly, I remember being in Kuala Lumpur with Violet in 1999 I suppose it was, and uh, decided to walk towards the KL Tower, which we could see quite clearly. And of course it was so very, very, very tall, it was visible from some distance away i think we probably walked for four hours it didn't seem to get any closer to it <laughs> it's the same with rocket launches you know you think that they're much closer than they are but because they're so high uh they're visible from a great distance away which explains why you'll see it and then you won't hear the sound for a good few seconds when you're up
3: that close uh, as we were in 2000 it's not a case of hearing it, it's a case of feeling it. Yeah. It really does hit your chest. It does make you think what would have that felt like when a Saturn five went up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I've been at gigs where bass pedals, you know, can almost make you vomit if you're standing in the the front <laughs> row. And I would imagine a Saturn five would be a, a little like that. It would, you know, physically oscillate the uh, organs in your body, find a a resonant frequency and shake it to bits. Um, Listen, I've just thought of something before we started doing this. I I was explaining to you about how I'm I'm not a a Star Wars man, but I'm a, a big Star Trek guy and I'm very pleased to be able to report that there is a starship in Star Trek named the USS Gagarin. Wow! It's uh, yeah. Its registration number is NCC thirteen oh nine. It appears in the new Netflix series or CBS Star Trek Discovery. It's a shepherd. Class starship, which is kind of confusing that if the class of starship is named after Alan Shepard, but this particular one is called Gagarin. But uh, you might want to look into that. But uh, I think it's <laughs> wonderful. And um, it, it may not actually, I'm going to check this, it may not be the only reference to Gagarin in Star Trek. I think there was another starship called the Yuri Gagarin at some point, and I think that was in um, The Next Generation. So there's about 150 years between those two uh, starships, sharing similar names, yeah.
3: Wow. I also like the fact that in the first series of Discovery, they mentioned uh, different people that was important in the history of space flight. And one of the people mentioned was Elon Musk.
1: Yes, yes, he does get a mention. I'd forgotten that. And, of course, the uh, the starship that Captain Georgiou uh, flying is called the Shenzhou, which is the mm-hmm. name of the uh, Chinese uh, spacecraft. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's based in reality. I love that.
3: That, that. It was very much based in reality. I mean, you look at the things that uh, you had in the, the next generation. I mean, a lot of those things are becoming science fact
1: you know the the communicator became the mobile phone of course um uh, the medical scanners well that's the mri scanner that we have now we still haven't managed to um Crack uh, reacting matter and antimatter with a, controlling it with a dilithium crystal. We're still slightly uncertain, as Mr. Heisenberg might say, uh, considering um, uh, transporters and uh, dematerialization and rematerialization, but I'm sure someone's working on it.
3: Probably, yeah. I mean, one of the things that is very Star Trek, somebody has actually discovered a way of making see through
1: or transparent aluminium. Yeah. Yes, I, I, so, I heard this, yes. <laughs> if well, I remember interviewing Jerry Anderson for a program many years ago, and he was talking about the important role that science fiction plays in invention. And he said that, uh, if I can paraphrase, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but to the uh, words to the effect that um, science fiction predicts a reality, a future reality, and it's up to scientists. To turn it into something that's probably not as dark as science fiction comes up with, you know. Let's let's make it better than our worst imagination is. I think what he was trying to allude to.
3: Yeah, because when I mean, you look at science fiction, there's there's two different types. There's the the Star Trek where there's a brighter future, and then you've got things like
1: 2001 yeah. <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Star Trek is unique. I think it is the only positive image of the future that is around i mean whenever anyone comes up with a future image it's always dystopian i mean you know maybe there's a the, the truth in that that it's probably going to get worse than it is heck with brexit and trump the, there's every chance but um as an eternal optimist i'd much rather invest in Star In fact, Star Trek, if you think about it, it's the direct opposite of Brexit. You know, we are never going to have the United Federation of Planets if we withdraw from a union of European nations. I think I'll leave it there. That's that's my political sum-up for the <laughs> evening. We, we always do
3: something like 20 seconds or so of politics and go, right, we'll leave that at the door. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: In space, no one can hear you scream apart from when uh, we do finally Brexit there'll be an awful lot of screaming in Britain. I'm sure people will hear it even on the far side of the moon.
3: There was this weird uh, joke going around on Facebook today. It was, um, Theresa May dressed up as Princess Leia and she's saying, uh, Yuri Geller, you're my only hope. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. It is amazing, though. The space... Industry can combine a load of people together. When there's a rocket launch, you're sitting there in your place, I'm sitting here, there's John over in Pennsylvania watching it exactly the same time, all feeling the same thing. Yeah,
1: well, I remember the Apollo space programme, the moon landing. Practically every person on this planet was united for one moment... Watching what was going on, cross nations, and that may have been the first time that ever happened. And in the future, I would like to see space uniting us more and more. Just as tonight, you know, we've celebrated space, we've celebrated Yuri Gagarin. We should come together and celebrate the fact that there is only one human race, and uh, we need to get out there into space together.
3: Definitely. Now, Gareth, I know we've had you on the show in different guises, um, sometimes to promote things that you've been doing and stuff, but we've never actually had you on the show to talk about space. You've, this is your first time being actually physically on TGP Nominal. And because of what you've done for us in the past, we'd like to make you one of our honorary crew members.
1: Well, wow, that's a, a huge... Uh... Honour, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I, I'm honoured to be considered a TGB nominal honorary crew member. Thank you. Very much. What we
3: we do, and I'm, I'm going to have to do it sort of virtually at the moment, we, we present you with one of our mission patches, and uh, what I ask in return is if you could take a photograph of yourself with it so that we can put you on the honorary crew members'
1: wall. It would be a huge pleasure to do that, to be included with uh, some tremendous people who really, really do work in the space industry and uh, to be uh, listed on your wall with those people would be fabulous I may not have got to the moon but I'm, I'm getting a little bit closer thanks to you Mark, thank you very much indeed
3: <laughs> You're actually going to be joining a, a fellow North Welshman actually, oh. who's coming up on there soon. Right,
1: who's that then? Uh,
3: a guy called Spencer Wilding Oh yes, yeah, a good Welsh name that's Spencer Wilding I don't know the yep. name. Who, who's that then? Well, he's an actor and um, martial artist who has been in things like Guardians of the Galaxy. And he was also Darth Vader in Rogue oh, One. Oh, this
1: is the chap from Rill. Uh, that, That's the guy? do yeah, I, I yep. know who
3: you mean now. Yes, yes. So um, I, I interviewed him recently. And uh, he's he's lovely. He was really lovely. Good, but
1: well, not um, like Darth Vader at all. then. he didn't uh, pick you up by the throat and uh, or do that mind trick on you that he does.
3: Very intimidating, though. I mean, the guy's six foot eight, and and I'm just coming up to like five foot six. So it it was like, as I've mentioned before, like being in a Gulliver's Travels. You know, it was someone from Lilliput in comparison to. I,
1: I, I think you're more like an Ewok.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: well, that's wonderful. I'm, so, I'm very glad that another North Walian has made it on the programme. That, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So, Gareth, once
3: again, thanks for joining us. And uh, I hope the rest of your Yuri's Night will be fantastic. Spasiba, Bajaltz, and live long and prosper. So that was a great way to finish off the chat, wasn't it?
2: Uh, you know, also talking some Star Trek and so forth. Although... I have not seen the newest uh, Star Trek series. I will not pay CBS for it. Uh, And I'm not in the minority either. I know several Star Trek fans who are the same way. But yeah, the Gagarin in Discovery met a very nasty end. It was destroyed by basically cloaked Klingon ships. You guys were mentioning where you were trying to, where you heard Gagarin in Star Trek before? Yeah. It was actually in the Next Generation episode, Unnatural Selection. Definitely not one of the episodes I would watch again if I had to, unfortunately. But uh, for anyone who doesn't know which one that is, Star Trek fans, of course, will understand all of this. Second season, uh, Catherine Pulaski goes down to a planet where there's a genetic research station and ends up that the people who are the subjects of the research... Had these, uh, if I remember correctly, like antibodies and so forth that actually go out and hunt bacteria and so forth and kill them proactively, which ends up accelerating the aging process of everybody else. So, uh, Diana Muldar's character ended up aging very rapidly while she was on this planet in the genetic research facility, and that planet's name was Pagarin 4. So, there you go. Ah. I was like, yeah, I know that, I know that, but I gotta look it up. And I looked up and I was like, oh yeah, that episode. <laughs> okay. Most of seasons one and two are forgettable. I think you'll
3: get that with most um sci-fi shows though. It, sometimes it takes a bit of time to um to grow organically. Although saying that though, I've quite enjoyed the Orville from the word go.
2: Yeah, I need to see that. The problem is I don't even have a cable box down here anymore. Mm-hmm. So, I would have to have cable to watch it, and I'm just too much into video games and 3D printing. (laughs) Well, yeah, a lot of that. Speaking of Star Trek, as long as we're on the topic, I'm going to hijack this for a bit. (laughs) I was on the Indiegogo for the Deep Space Nine. It's called What We Left Behind, and Iris Stephen Bear, who produced Deep Space Nine is going back and doing interviews with the cast and crew and the whole thing is based on what if Deep Space Nine never left the air what would it be like today and it's also you know a history documentary as well but that will be coming out very soon I just got an email today saying that it's going to be released to Indiegogo backers for streaming in uh, well before the end of the month that it's going to hit a theatrical run I'm, I'm sure that's going to be limited uh, but then Shout Factory, I think, has decided they're going to come on as a publisher. So it'll be available on disc relatively soon as well, after, you know, sometime after its theatrical run. But this part is really cool. You and I have talked about this before, that uh, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, although the live-action shots were recorded on film, the CGI effects were done oh God, in NTSC video. Which, in and of itself, wouldn't be so bad because then you could take the original components to it, remaster it for high definition, blah, 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 blah. Except for the fact that because they were not properly backed up or properly stored, all of that data was lost with a hard drive crash. Ouch. So, yeah. I was reading it, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is one of the most iconic TV series in history, and you simply left the master data on a single PC with no backups are you out of your Vulcan mind Spock (laughs) but that's one of the reasons why when the next generation came out on Blu-ray people were really like uh I'm not paying $130 per season because Paramount or CBS I guess decided to go through and try to remaster all of those original elements in high def so they had to recompose everything. They had to uh, take in all the, uh, you know, the the models and so forth. They had to rebuild them. It was a massive undertaking for that. As a result, they had to charge a lot more for the seasons. And the fans are just kind of like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. So the chances of doing that for Deep Space Nine and Voyager, not going to happen. Oh, the other, the other thing that uh, you were talking about, I know that he very briefly talked on uh, the whole thing with Brexit. And uh, I'm a Yankee. I've got no cards on that table. So (laughs) I've got nothing to do with Brexit. But just because we're both nerds, we can both appreciate this. Have you seen the video of Andy Serkis reprising his role as Gollum, playing a role as Theresa May? I've heard about it. I haven't actually seen it. It is hysterical. Now, granted, if you're one who favors Brexit... You might not like it, but you can at least appreciate what he's doing and the fact that he's bringing back Gollum. Talking about what she thinks are the positive points of Brexit versus the negative points and Gollum's going back and forth, back and forth. I was nerding out, (laughs) I have to admit, (laughs) because he did it so well. But again, whether you actually enjoy it or not based on the topic is completely different. Got to appreciate the effort, though. And I don't understand what you were talking about regarding Richard Garriott. I I don't I don't know what you mean at all. <laughs> I I wasn't, you know, totally drooling over the prospect of talking to him.
3: <laughs> he was very surprised that we managed to get him on the show, actually.
2: Well, you know. And of course, you know, being able to meet him the following year at PAX East. That mm-hmm. was that right there made the entire cost of going up there worth it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, he, he knew you were come. You were going to be there anyway, because I, I, in reality, it just kind of happened because, yeah. uh, I think you said something that something got delayed. So yep. Yep. yeah,
2: yeah, because so, I remember his uh, his panel was going to be at eleven a.m. Pax opens at ten, and I went. I was like, Pff, I don't care about the show floor. I went straight to the waiting line for the panel. Ended up in the front row. And because they were still trying to get people in there, they're like, "Okay, folks, we're gonna delay the panel for a few minutes while we get everybody else into the you know into the uh, the conference room." And there he was. He walked in and he was standing there. So I said, "Oh, I've got a few minutes of time here. I'm gonna go say hello." And it was totally worth it. Yeah, he's such a great guy. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, I've got a mission patch. Uh huh. And. <laughs> um. You know, he's got a mission patch. (laughs) Yeah. For anyone who doesn't understand, Mark loves his mission patches. And this is one that he will not get. (laughs) Not from me. (laughs) Richard Garrett went up to the International Space Station, obviously. He has his own mission patch for that. And he he seems to carry a few of them with him wherever he goes. Mm -hmm. And when someone talks to him regarding that instead of just gaming, he apparently we'll uh, give them a mission patch. Well, since I talked to him about the podcast and all that, and uh, thanked him for his time with us and how much I enjoyed interviewing him, he gave me one of the mission patches. I'd just like to point out at this stage
3: that (laughs) if you're going to the Yuri's Night event at kennedy space center richard is going to be there but don't guarantee that he's going to have any mission patches okay
2: mark has a new mission in life to show me up on that comment (laughs) i'm fine with that
3: richard is going to be at the florida year's night event so that's cool
2: makes me wish this country wasn't so damn big
3: (laughs) they've already had the one in la they had that last weekend. Um, That's three
2: times as far. (laughs) (laughs) That's the opposite coast, man. I could drive to Florida in 15 hours. It takes 55 hours for me to drive to California. Guys, just go out there and look up net and
3: see what is out there because pretty much every major country in the world has got an event on. Right, we're going to take another short break and when we come back... It's time to look up in the big black.
4: Hello everyone, this is Steph Evans of the YouTube channel The Stimulus. One of the main reasons I started my channel was in the hopes of inspiring young people to pursue their interest in science, technology, engineering, and math careers, or STEM careers. And events like Yuri's Night are very important in achieving the same goal. In this case, promoting an interest in space exploration. Yuri's Night is a celebration of the achievements of the past that will likely inspire the heroes of the future that will lead us out into the solar system, and that's why Yuri's Night helps rock the planet.
5: Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Richard Garriott, the 483rd person to leave our home planet, and the first second-generation American astronaut. If, like me, you long to explore the cosmos, take heart. While only a few of the over 18,000 NASA applicants will fly with NASA, there are many new avenues opening up for us to use. In addition to government astronauts and private astronauts like me, we will soon see independent commercial activities in space which will be privately funded, privately planned, profitable enterprises which will fly astronauts of their own. So the challenge I lay before you is to plan and execute some of these bold new businesses which will lead humanity into being a multi-planet species. See you on Mars. And happy Yuri's Night.
3: So welcome back to CGP Nominal for our Yuri's Night special podcast. Now, people out there that don't know the podcast because they're visiting from the Yuri's Night website, what we do at the beginning of each month is we have a special guide to the night skies and it's brought to us by the guys at UK Astronomy. Now the guy who invented UK Astronomy is our resident astronomer and that is Ross Hockham. How are you doing sir?
6: I like that yeah, invented UK Astronomy. Thank you.
3: Ross, you're going to go through with us uh, what's going on in the night skies for, well not necessarily night skies but skies for April and you're hosting an event tonight aren't you?
6: We're hosting Uh, Yuri's night free stargazing night so I'm literally just going to take all my telescopes and just do a free stargazing night for anyone that wants to come along bring their telescopes binoculars have a look up and just generally just learn about the sky and look up and just chat just because I thought it would be just quite a nice thing to do wouldn't it especially for Yuri's night
3: it's what Yuri's night is all about what do you got for us Ross
6: well we can officially say it's spring apparently (laughs) not you would know it in England at the moment it's been really cold (laughs) and I think they're actually apparently it's going to snow again soon what they've been talking about. I find quite strange because actually I've been reading in magazines that uh, they're saying that the sun is actually just kind of starting a new cycle and it's saying that its surface activity is going to get more intense. It's going to become more active and apparently it's going to bring more flares, possibly hotter weather on Earth for the next sort of decade or so. As we know, the sun does have a natural cycle. It's about 11 years. It goes into like a solar minimum and a solar maximum. And it's meant to be creeping out of its maximum at the moment and actually going into its minimum. So I'm going to have to research this a bit more because I'm interested. I like the sun because I've, I've got special gear that I can actually look at the sun with filters and things. And I have to say, never look at the sun because it will hurt your eyes and you'll go blind. So never, ever look at the sun unless you're with me or a professional. At the moment, it's meant to be its maximum. I've seen a few flares and prominences. It's where magnetic loops pretty much come out of the sun and you get the plasma getting pushed out and around. It looks quite cool. And then they can be flares if they sort of twist up and then snap like an elastic band. They throw flares out, which we had one not long ago, didn't we? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think one came our way and you were meant to be able to see the uh, aurora. So the northern or southern lights. Uh, there are southern ones as well people think it's only in the north but they do happen in the south and yeah i didn't see any did you see any
3: i didn't but the atmospherics for it were perfect but yeah i didn't actually see anything
6: no i, I unfortunately didn't see much at all there were pictures in the facebook group some people got them some people actually deliberately traveled up to sort of like iceland and places like that and i think some went for maybe scotland to have a better look up there and they did get them so it did happen it was really cool So yeah, I I like the sun and considering we're meant to be in the maximum, they've said it's been quite quiet and there hasn't been a lot going on. And now suddenly the activity is going to get more intense, but we're in a minimum. So I'm going to have to look this up because I find this intriguing. I like to know what's going on. So yeah, so welcome to spring. Hopefully it's going to warm up. First thing I'm going to talk about today is Mars. Nicely placed. If you look up in the sky at night, it's going to be right near the Seven Sisters, which we know quite well, don't we? The Pleiades, the Seven Sisters in Taurus the Bull. The night sky. It's a really, through the winter, it's a really nice, prominent sort of uh, group of stars you can see up there. It's there, just kind of below the Pleiades at the moment, but it's going to move up and sort of like up and to the left, I'll say. It's going to go between the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, and the Bullseye, which is the red star Aldebaran, or Aldebaran, I like to say. And that's uh, located in the asterism called the Hades which is pretty much just a V, which is marking the bull's head of Taurus. And it's made up of some really nice yellow-orange-red kind of stars, which is a complete contrast to the bright blue Pleiades, almost kind of to the right next to it. So you've got two really nice things there. And Mars is meant to be going up through the middle throughout the month, so you're actually going to see it move quite fast through the sky now. Because at first, it was moving slowly. As we've gone round in orbit, it gets to a point which is called its sort of retrograde, which means where it kind of stops in the sky as we kind of go one way and then we start going back the other way around the sun and it's done that and now we're going round quite rapidly it's going to move quicker through the sky so it's going to look quite cool like bouncing up which i think is quite a nice thing to see throughout the month the only thing is looking at mars for a telescope not going to see much detail unfortunately because it has actually got quite small now in the eyepiece when you look for it even with some magnification it's got dimmer because we are moving away almost kind of round the opposite side of the sun to it So it is going to disappear eventually, maybe a few months time it will be the other side of the Sun. But then we should come back round and have another good look at it. Fingers crossed. Now, while we're on Mars, I have to mention the Mars Rover Opportunity, I believe it is. It's the right one, isn't it?
3: Yeah, good old Oppie.
6: (laughs) I've read in magazines and heard on the news that NASA have tried for the last time to contact it and they've officially now confirmed that it's dead.
3: It actually gave out a signal just before it died. I really hate giving these rovers and things personalities because um, the last thing it actually said to NASA was, my battery is dying, it's getting dark.
6: Oh, that's good for humans, though. Humans love a bit of emotion attached. The public love it. Yeah. But all you can say is it's not really a sad thing because what a legacy.
3: It (laughs) was only supposed to be a few months.
6: Exactly. Didn't they say, like, 90 souls or something, which is like... Is that, is that Sundays, Earth days?
3: Yeah. I think it worked out. It was only supposed to be active for about nine months. Now, give or take, I don't know how many years it's been. it's
6: Yeah. I think said about 15 years now. Yeah, it was I, I think
3: it was that. Yeah, about 15
6: yeah. years. Imagine that. It's, it's like someone saying to you, right, you've only got three months to live. 15 years later, yeah, I've had enough now. I'm done. What? Yeah. How, how
3: have you done that? <laughs> amazing yeah it's just
6: like it's again it's like the voyages still going Mm -hmm. like some things unfortunately they do fail don't they some things don't work they land they crash things happen but when they do work they seem to just it just go forever so i think it's really cool like to think that up there you know that rover's been going around for 15 years i think there's a is there a goo i'm sure there's a google mars
3: i know there used to be a google mars i'm i'm sure there is somewhere Um... so i remember
6: looking and seeing its tract of where it's been
3: i mean it it did fail before because of uh the amount of dust and things that got on yeah. the on the solar panels, which happened to uh a lot of the other ones. I know it happened to curiosity as well. Yeah, but that's another one that just keeps going and going and going. But I read
6: that it was that there was a huge dust storm, wasn't there, last year that we spoke about? Yeah, because remember I said that you know it's the closest we're going to be to Mars in fifteen years, and Um... I'm going to really looking forward to getting a really cool picture of it. I did some proper astrophotography, and I got a blurred red blob, didn't
3: I? Yeah, and you thought it was something wrong.
6: (laughs) Yeah, and then I looked it up, and I realised that there was a planet-wide dust storm. They tried to power it down, didn't they, to try and stop
3: getting damaged and then try to
6: wake it up again.
3: They basically did the the usual IT support thing, turn it off and turn it on again, (laughs) um, which worked. (laughs) But
6: But yeah, fortunately, it's obviously, you know, it's had its day. But I, I sit there now and I think, oh, I use that picture in my talks to like kids and that to show them, you know, this is how my friend, Mr. Pickles, who's a really good astrophotographer, funnily enough, he's doing a talk in, I think, June or July. In uh, Emberton, that's one to look out for. <laughs> Plug my own stuff. He's a really good astrophotographer and he's got a really nice picture of Mars. And some of it was around the same time as mine, but after the dust storm had gone. So I always put mine on there to say, look, that's not a great picture, but I got a planet wide dust storm. That's a picture of a planet wide dust storm. How cool's that? And now I can say in my talk, that killed the rover. <laughs> That planalite dust storm there killed the rover, which is also in my talk.
3: Yeah, that was pretty harsh. It's probably one of the worst dust storms they've had for years.
6: Yeah, well, I mean, looking for a telescope, I mean, I've seen Mars a few times and how you can see the detail. And I know atmosphere and stuff changes it and how close you are in orbit and that. But, yeah, that was really, I couldn't, you know, you just sit there and think this isn't right. In my head, I was going, right, something's wrong here. It's not the it's not the planet. It's not my eyepiece. It's not no. That's all right. Checking all the telescope, checking all the stuff, and then you go ah, Google, planet-wide dust storm. Fair enough. Can't do anything about that. No. <laughs> but yeah, and I've I've read actually that it died in a valley called Perseverance. Mm-hmm. Which is how good is that? Yeah. Because it did persevere for you know a lot longer than it should have. So it's almost like meant to be. Yeah, I had to I had to mention it because I thought, wow, that's cool. I mean, it's it's more science in space stuff than astrophotography for me but it's all linked isn't it oh yeah so it's all, it's all linked it's at all the
3: there. end of the day uh, anything that is on uh, any planet surface is astronomy
6: yeah and maybe one day we'll make a telescope powerful or, you know clever enough to actually be able to look that close and see these things that would be really cool i don't think it's ever going to happen because you need a lot of technology and <laughs> Even the ones in space struggle, don't they? You actually have to have something flying around to see the details.
1: Yeah, yep,
3: you have yeah. to have a, an observer, which um, they've got a couple of those flying around Mars now. So They
6: mm, uh, have, yeah. And the Moon as well. They've got a few, haven't they? All, there's at least one.
3: I think actually there might be about three, because I think the Chinese have got one. Mm. Uh, I think the Japanese have got one. And I know for a fact NASA have got one, because I know a guy who works on it. Well, not literally, oh, not literally on it, but...
6: Yeah, because there's the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, isn't there? Because that took the picture of the uh, landing sites.
3: That's the one. Uh, yeah,
6: that, I, looked, that looked cool.
3: I'll give, I'll give him a name check as well. The guy guy's name is Noah Petro, uh, awesome. and he, uh, he works for NASA, and he's pretty much in charge of the LRO, the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter.
6: Well, tell him next time he makes one. Make it bigger and shinier so that I can see it for a telescope flying (laughs) around. That would be cool.
3: It's going to be about (laughs) needs to be about the size of a bus. Yeah, to be able to be seen for a normal telescope.
6: That's the only thing. that's a shame, isn't it? Because you can see satellites and ISS flying over and things like that. But people always say to me, "Oh, why can't you see the stuff flying around the moon?" And I'm like, "It's just too small." Mm -hmm. too small it doesn't reflect enough light you just you can't you can't see it which is a shame because it'd be really cool to see so maybe we build a space station around the moon as well
3: well I mean these guys that are making these uh, little satellite things that have been described as space disco balls they can be seen only for a small amount of time because they go around so many times before they burn up yeah but um, yeah you can see these things so uh, and scientists are starting to do that now uh, make them more shiny so that they can be seen from earth
6: cool That's good for me. The more I can see, the better. So, yep, you've got Mars, the Pleiades, the ball moving across really nicely. And yeah, the dead robot in that there. but it's still one going strong. So don't worry, there's always something going on on Mars. Right, I suppose we to get on to the month ahead then. So if we move to the 13th, uh, there's a nearly half moon. It's passing through a really nice cluster of stars in Cancer the Crab, which is a constellation, which is pretty much an X. And in the middle of the X is this cluster of stars it's going to take a couple of hours maybe a few hours from about nine o'clock till midnight the moon's going to kind of like pass backwards through the sky through the beehive cluster which is also called presepe i believe which is like p-r-a-e-s-e-p-e but i like to call it the beehive cluster it's cool really lovely load of stars to see with binoculars all different types of colors they're all there blue whites, reds the lot so it's really cool to see you're going to be able to actually watch the moon kind of go through them and watch the stars disappearing behind the moon which is is quite a good thing to see especially if you've got a telescope you can look a little bit closer and see the edge of the moon and actually see the stars disappearing behind and then coming back the other side the next day on the 14th there's another chance to see the jewelled handle which if you missed it last month or the month before I believe I've spoken about it a couple of months it does happen almost every month it's an effect on uh, what's known as the Jura Mountains which is part of the Sinus iridium area uh, the morning light just catches the peaks or the tops of these mountains and it creates like a cool effect that's like sparkling jewels on like a handle or something like that
3: isn't that close uh, to where the moon maiden was that it, you spoke yep. about last time which you managed to get some pictures of
6: I did yeah that was really I went out into my back garden literally as our tagline says <laughs> billion words in your back garden yeah I wanted to I wanted to see that and luckily it was clear I popped out and literally yeah the Jura Mountains is like a sort of like an arch and just to the bottom of that they kind of stick out into the mare and if you use a reflector it flips it upside down it looks like a woman almost sitting on the rocks doesn't it with their hair flowing Yeah. and that's the moon maiden so yeah she's there as well have a look see if you can find that there so there's two things in the same area and yeah I I really liked that I really enjoyed that that's my kind of astronomy because that I didn't know about Mm -hmm. so I read it I looked at it researched it thought right I'm going to go out and do that and then I got a picture of it just using my phone and then I sent it to you (laughs) (laughs) as you do I was like look I got it Mark brilliant so yeah you can see that two things there you can see there and yeah so if you look at the mare imbrium it's quite a big one it's pretty much the big dark patch at the top of the moon and around about 10 o'clock of that it looks like someone's almost like taken a bite out of the white mountainous area or the Maray's kind of seeped into it. And that's where the Dura Mountains are. You can find them on an app. There's like Moon Globe HD and things like that that will show you where it is. And if you then, once you find the Dura Mountains and maybe the Moon Maiden at the bottom, if you're lucky, or the top if you're using a reflector, follow the Mare up to the right and there's a really nice crater there named Plato and he's named after you know a famous astronomer and probably mathematician they're they're all astronomers and mathematicians aren't they
3: bill and ted put it back in the day they said the guy who invented plates but uh, yeah yeah
6: (laughs) yeah i'm not sure about that one (laughs) (laughs) but i like it plato the guy who invented plates yeah it's a cool thing to find. you can you should be able to see it with your eye hopefully it's quite small but if you've got good eyes you might be able to see it if not pair of binoculars have a look at the telescope. You're there anyway. So there's a few little things to see in that area. It's quite cool. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. Then if we move on to the 16th, it's possibly the last chance to spot Venus in the sky. It has moved quite quickly in the morning now, back towards the sun. It was a really nice, prominent, bright planet up in the sky, but it's now moving. It's going to be close to Mercury in the morning sky, so as we know, is quite low so Venus won't be too, you know, far off of it. So they might be a little bit difficult to see, low in the sky, tough spot. But as I said, Moonus now starts to move back towards the Sun in the sky and then later become an evening object again as it moves round to the other side of it. So it's probably the last time to see it in the morning. But it will be back. It doesn't go anywhere, hopefully. We move to the 19th. We've got a nice full moon. There's not much to say about a full moon apart from it looks cool as it rises on the horizon. It looks really good get pictures or videos of it coming up. It is going to wash out most of the dark sky stuff, which is the stuff that I like to look at. Unfortunately, it's not good news for the next thing that's coming up on the 22nd. Although it won't be a completely full moon, on the 22nd we've got a uh, a little meteor shower called the Lyrid meteor shower. But the bright moon rising around midnight will kind of interfere with them. So it's not great, but you never know. Not far from where the actual Lyrid meteor shower radiates will be the king of the planets, Jupiter with Saturn chasing after it, probably around 2.30, rising. So even while you're just kind of sitting there, waiting to see a meteor shower, these two planets will be rising. You can see them both with the telescopes. Have a little peek, then look up. Have a little peek, then look up. So there's more than one thing that you can have a peek at while you're out there. So if you don't see any, it's not a loss, because you'll see Jupiter and Saturn, hopefully. The rings and you know Jupiter and its four main moons flying around. Lyrid meteor shower... It gets better, really, as the night goes on, because it kind of rises throughout the night. But then again, so does the moon. <laughs> so it's got kind of catch-22. It gets better, but the moon also comes up as well. It's not really that well-known, the meteor shower, and it radiates roughly, if you find the blue star Vega, which is in the constellation of Lyra, the harp, it's kind of like a pretty much a diamond shape constellation, with Vega kind of just above the top of it, which is the big bright blue star, and it's just to the right of that very you know so if you find vago that's around about where they would be radiating uh there's only about probably some people have said 10 an hour 18 an hour so 10 to 20 an hour it's not a lot but you never know because you can never predict how good one might be you only need that one good one to actually burn up through the sky or even pop and stuff and that's major night so why not if you're there go and have a look see the two planets see the your shower enjoy 24th minor planet 44 nicer or NISA, reaches opposition tonight. I thought I'd throw a minor planet in just for a bit of fun for the uh, people with slightly larger telescopes, probably a medium-sized telescope you'll need, probably about 6-inch, I'd say, something like that. It's 10th magnitude, so yeah, that'll probably do. Medium-sized, 6 8-10 8-10 inch being the constellation of Virgo and as I said you will need a scope to find it because it's quite dim you won't be able to see it really with much binoculars possibly but you'll really need a steady hand and a good eye <laughs> and a good chart Nicea or Nyssa is a large and very bright main belt asteroid it's in the asteroid belt that's between Mars and Jupiter discovered by Hermann Goldschmidt on May the 22nd 1857 and he named it after the mythical land of Nyssa which uh, in Greek mythology is uh, meant to be a mountainous district. And it was traditionally the place of uh, the rain nymphs, which are the Hades and the Pleiades. So apparently they're sisters, the Hades. I thought they were brothers, I read somewhere that They were the brothers of the sisters, the seven sisters, Pleiades. But I read now that apparently they're actually, they're, they're sisters to the Pleiades. And both of them, for some reason, seem to be associated with rain. I think it's to do with something in Greek mythology. Around them, there's a, there's a district with lots of mountainous regions and it quite often rains there and it brings the rains so i thought it was quite cool Mm i thought that kind of goes in with it because we've mentioned both of them so yeah so when you're looking up there you're actually seeing rain nymphs in the sky it's a bit weird right 25th the moon has moved towards the planet saturn now so it's gone near jupiter back towards saturn the next night then being the opposite side of the planet so on the 25th it's going to be to the right of the planet and then the next morning it would have moved to the opposite side of it I, I hate this because it's kind of morning night to me it happens at like you know two three four in the morning but because i stay up that still counts as a night
3: yeah me too
6: <laughs> i always say it's not till you fall asleep is it yeah when you yep. go to bed it doesn't become the next
3: day yeah, it's, well, so, when, yeah it's... when you wake up that is the next day
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's how it counts even if it isn't the next day yeah so yep so you'll see it those both the 25th and the 26th with the moon just moving either side it's a nice opportunity to spot the ring gas giant and easy to find because it'd be by the moon and then the last but not least on the 30th you've got a chance to see the moon Ganymede shadow transit Jupiter It'll be around about 4.40am the sky will be just kind of getting brighter with the rising sun so do be careful but yeah you should see the shadow transit across the planet again good for a picture and yeah that's that's everything coming up this month so enjoy <laughs>
3: So what else have you got coming up Uh, apart from the Yuri's Night event? What what else have you got?
6: Not a lot this month for me but we have got May the 4th, funnily enough May the 4th be with you. I'm going back to Emberton where I first ever started UK Astronomy because it's technically this year as we've probably spoken about before is our five years yeah so it's a five-year anniversary it is in November so I'm probably going to do something around that time as well but yeah May the 4th is a ticket event and it's I think it's about it's three pound but we get kind of like two pound fifty of it fifty p goes to you know the people who we use on the internet to promote it all because they do all the work for us pretty much which is quite nice of them and that's eventbrite so yeah we get a little bit of money from that which will help cover the costs and really i'm just going back there because i like the pavilion i like the people there i like the community it's where we started five years ago little talk for you know two pound fifty three pound and the talk is just going to be pretty much my journey so it's not going to be all about look at me i'm great my name's ross and i've uk astronomy it's just going to be a humorous here's how I started this is all the humorous silly things that have happened throughout astronomy here's all the cool stuff I've seen this is you know my journey and you know has anyone else got any journeys has anyone got funny stories as well and then stargazing afterwards so there'll be tea, coffee, biscuits and yeah it should just be a cool night so May the 4th that should be fun and then uh, after that the next month we've then got uh, Mr Pickles is talking all about astrophotography so keep an eye on our Facebook or our, our website www.ukastronomy.org and all our events are on there every single one that we do it's about one a week at the moment so yeah I'm making me money's worth
3: <laughs> <laughs> So that that was going to be the next question but you kind of answered it there for, for, for anybody out there who are listening to this show for the first time and they've been brought in through the Yuri's Night website Um, how do they get in touch with you which you just mentioned there you can go to the the website you can go to the Facebook page um, just go onto Facebook and look up UK astronomy and um, you'll find the Facebook Group there, and uh, how many members you got now? It's just, I think it's like
6: four thousand two hundred, something like that, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. over four thousand members all over the UK. And I don't butt in too much. I go in there once a while just to let you know what's going on in the sky or events we're doing or other cool events people are doing. But generally, I just I like to leave the group to just mingle, chat to each other, share pictures, and just make a little community where they can all, you know learn and get to know each other that's what it's about
3: and that is the whole thing with the uk astronomy group is if if somebody has got a problem with a scope or or whatever there is always someone there that can probably help
6: i can only kind of cover the buckinghamshire area so milton keynes owlsbury northampton buckingham all that sort of bit but give me give me an email info at ukastronomy.org The email goes straight to me, Ross. If you have a problem, I'll see if I can help. If not, I can post it in the group for you if you don't really want to and then come back to you with all their answers and stuff. So we're just there to help. That's all we do. There to help you learn.
3: Well, once again, Ross, thanks for coming on the show and uh, happy Yuri's Night.
6: Yeah, clear skies and happy Yuri's Night. And hopefully we can talk about Yuri's Night when we come back. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be clear.
3: Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Every
0: one of us Well,
3: John. Yes, sir. Thanks for helping me making this special episode happen.
2: Hey, thanks for putting up with me again.
3: Yeah, it's always a pleasure. (laughs) I'd also like to thank Gareth Jones for chatting with us Ross Hockham and everyone at UK Astronomy for their continued support Diane Weiner from Syracuse University for taking time out to tell us about the CryptCon 2019 everyone who submitted Yuri's Night Messages and of course Steve Dix from Liquid Management for the use of the Public Service Broadcasting Gagarin track and if you haven't heard the Race for Space album go and check it out so that leaves me just to say Thanks to everyone for listening to the show. Take care one and all, and
2: don't forget to...
3: Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal.
2: If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send
4: an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output.
2: Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our
3: podcasts You can do so via iTunes The RSS feed And also Stitcher
2: and TuneIn On Demand Radio And you can listen to me going solo Bringing you the latest in movies and home theatre For regular people In the widescreen podcast Over at widescreen.org Don't forget to rate and review us If you like what we're doing here Then why not
3: buy us a pint By clicking on the donate button On any of the podcast pages And don't forget to spread the word about us